What did you just tell me? It's the 27th episode of Fried Squirm? Yeah, it's 27th film. And I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. We are again coming at you from Missoula, Montana. Zoo and talking about horror movies and trying to do our second doubleheader. Yeah. This time without a guest. I don't know. I feel like maybe I should lead off this one a little bit. Because I sort of pushed for this one to be a doubleheader. Because I was like, yeah, Green Room and Get Out. By the way, we're doing Green Room and Get Out. Yeah, so... I was like, yeah, Green Room and Get Out. Like, two racially charged horror movies. Because Green Room's all fucking neo-Nazis and Get Out. I mean, if you don't know what the fuck Get Out's about, have you been living under a fucking rock? I know, like, right? This movie got all the attention. Welcome back to society. All the fucking buzz. Huge uh, buzz. Black guy has a really, really bad time going and meeting his white girlfriend's folks. Which Tyler and I can relate to. Yeah. <laughs> a really, really bad time. I thought it was a good However, idea. I do want to say, the fact that they're neo-Nazis really doesn't play in that much to the fact it, into Green Room. It really doesn't. I mean, somewhat, but not It's wholly. why they're all hanging out. Right. But that's about it. It's more circumstantial. Yeah, there's, there's no real big, like, racially charged moments in this. No. In it. No, I so agree. I feel kind of dumb about pushing those together. But it's for okay. That it's, it's still relevant because of, of its social commentary. I do think both of these movies, they're both in a way about weird, unfortunate culture crossing. I agree. You know, it's, it's not just exclusive here in the United States, which I think makes it even more relevant because there's a lot of that going on in Europe just as much as in Africa mm-hmm. and Australia, all over the world for that matter. Well, that's the other thing. I'm kind of curious on how, how we want to cover these two. I kind of I kind of suggest that we do away with our normal format and kind of just jump into talking about these movies kind of as a whole. Yeah, and I'm okay we'll, with that. We'll come up with a name for it, and I'll insert it later. I so still just, have so, our technical yeah, things about well, we'll have too, a, We'll still hit all the things that we're going to, but in order to keep our sanity in talking about two movies, I say we not break it up the way we normally do, and we just approach it as a whole. So from here on out, expect spoilers. Just know this. I think it's safe to say that we both highly recommend going and watching these movies. I concur with all of those sentiments. And with that being said, I'd kind of like to catch our audience up to date a little bit. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's that do that really doing. quick first, and then we'll go into that. Yeah, I, I agree. I was just telling Tyler, my comrade here in arms, that I got to meet a celebrity at our place of work, and okay. I didn't realize who this person was until after the fact. Being that this actress, she's more or less from our parents' generation, the actress I'm speaking of is Pam Dauber. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her by name. You'd be familiar with her by her role as Mindy in Mork and Mindy. Oh, no shit. No shit. Fucking used to watch the hell out of some Mork and Mindy. Yeah, so long story short, I was helping Pam Dauber out at And there's work. a fucking Mork and Mindy reference in Green Room. Yeah, so I was like, wow. You know, we talk about coincidences or just, you know, random occurrences that we see over and over. And this is being one of them because there, there was a death. And there's been plenty of deaths in Hollywood, but hers is kind of tied back into the fact that, you know, she started with Robin Williams, who passed away last year, and we're talking about Green Room, who has an actor who passed away last year as well in this film. We just covered Michael Parks, who passed away earlier this year, and we just lost another Hollywood icon this week as well, well and Adam want West. I mention that. He's not really tied into horror at all. And this no, but there is a connection. Podcast, but I love me some fucking Batman. I love me some Adam West. Likewise. I grew up with him watching the old, you know, we talked mm-hmm. about this, the old 66 Batman. And the fact that Vincent Price... Oh, yeah, we just mentioned last week that he was Egghead. Right. On the 66 So I, I hope Batman, we didn't... So. 
I hope we didn't jinx it is what I'm getting at. <laughs> right. Right. But just the fact that I got to meet Pam Dauber and didn't realize You're it until... You're really hoping that this podcast isn't a death note of some sort. Uh, I feel like it, it almost is becoming that way, but death is a major theme throughout horror films. So it's no coincidence that it's a recurring theme in our, in our real lives as well. Yeah, it was interesting. The same gentleman who had mentioned Vincent Price being in the hilarious house of Frankenstein is the same person who pointed out that I just met Pam Dobbs. That's or awesome. Dobber, excuse me, Pam Dobber. She's, yeah. she's also any... married to Mark Harmon, who's, he's more well known for, I guess, uh, like these Law and Order CSI type yeah. of shows. Yeah. I'm more familiar with him from the 1980s film Summer School, where he's teaching a, a group of summer school kids, one of them being uh, Courtney Thornsmith. So that's just a, a film that I'm familiar with, but I did realize that well, they are married, nice. and Mark Harmon has a home here, I believe, and he frequents Missoula. So cool, yeah, it's interesting. Awesome. So that that's been my happenings. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I don't have anything to report. I went and saw Wonder Woman, but all I got. What also, do you think? I've heard a lot of good things. It was awesome. It was so good. Would you say Go it's watch it? One of the better DC comic movies. It is the best DC comic movie that they've done. Wow, that's saying a well, lot. Of the current extended universe. I'm not talking like the Nolan-verse. Gotcha. And I'm not talking like old-school Burton-verse, because there wasn't really a Burton-verse except for two movies, you know what I well, mean? Well, it's understandable, yeah. So yeah, out of the current crop of the DC movies, it's absolutely easily the best. Uh, they fucking, they killed it. They hit the nail on the head. They did something spectacular. I've heard good things, so I'm glad that you liked it as well. I did mention in our last podcast, which uh, we'll be putting up shortly... Uh, before too long, what happened to the serial killer? He's getting seven oh, consecutive right, licenses. Right, right. Yeah, the the serial um, killer from around your neck. For those who have a little bit more morbid curiosity, there has been released sheriff's footage of one of well the victim who was locked up in that uh, shipping container. Right. So for those who want to see what happened when the sheriff's department found the victim, those vi- videos are available online. I did witness it, and I was like, wow. It's not very long. It's not too graphic, but it's still pretty shocking. How do you feel with this guy stealing all your credit and then finding your warehouse for your victim? I know. <laughs> well, there's a good reason I moved down here, Tyler. Right. <laughs> Don't give it all away. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all jokes aside, it's, it's interesting that it seems like every time I leave South Carolina, crazy shit happens. Crazy shit happens regardless of where you're from, but... It just seems like we make national news for whatever reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so with that, I don't know. Maybe we'll come up with a name for the segment. Maybe we won't. Maybe I'll just just insert some sort of noise. We'll improvise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, be warned. We do recommend you go watch these movies beforehand. But if you want to just hear us talk about them, that's what we're about to do. And we're not going to really break it down like we normally do. We're no experts on these subjects, but if you like to hear our opinions... These movies might just really show how ignorant we truly are, but... Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. This could be a I, challenge. I yeah. We'll uh, do our best, so let's put it that way. Yeah, well, and so come join us as we put our heads together to give you a double header. Yeah, a double header for a double green feature. Room and get, and out. get out now. All right, so let's talk about these movies. Where to start? That's the big question. That's a good question. You know, kind of what I would like to do, which might make it easier for us, we can delve right into the cast and the directors. Oh, yeah. Kind of get that out of the way. Yeah, let's you know, do that. Let's do I that. I think that would make it easy on us. Kind of make it feel a little bit at home. 
So for our 27th episode, we're, we were discussing Green Room and Get Out. So yeah, so let's, let's go with Green Room first. Okay. Green Room, of course, you already mentioned one of the members of the cast has unfortunately passed, and that would be Anton Yelchin, yeah. who gives an amazing performance in this throughout. He does a great job as Pat in this film. I didn't think he was going to be one of the survivors, honestly. I didn't think he was going to I'm going to take advantage of the fact that we are in we a spoiler-heavy section. Like, I was not expecting going into this, with the way his character was set up, that he would be one of the, the ones to live. I agree. Although he has, he does have a, a top billing. Yeah. But that doesn't always mean you're going to be doesn't a mean, final It, it means girl. that he was in Star Trek, so of course they're going to fucking... Well, of course. And he was, I mean, to tie it into horror, he was also in the Fright Night remake. And I thought he did a great job in that. I agree. He's uh, also it's not with a female cast mm-hmm. member in this, which we'll talk about in a second, in Fright Night, but go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, well, I was just going to say, Fright Night, I, th- I feel like a lot of people haven't watched it just because they wanted, the original is so good, they don't want to sully the image. There are purists in our genre. And it's not as good as the original, but the original is something special. Like, you're, you're not going to have that, that sort of lightning strike twice. Exactly. It's However, the remake, duplicate. it's a fun movie, and I thought everyone in it did a good job. And I, I just really like defending that movie. If you look and Anton Yelchin is a big part of that. So Exactly. And we had talked about some other films, of course, that he's in. One being Alpha Dog. Oh, right. right. Yeah, yeah. You, I've never seen it, but you and Jesse brought it up. It's a great film. The, uh, I highly recommend it. Emile Hirsch is in it. Right, I like Justin Emile Hirsch. Justin Timberlake is in it. I like uh, Ben Foster is in it. Okay. I'm going to have to see this then, because I, like, I like everyone they've just mentioned. It's I don't intense. know how I haven't seen this movie. Of course, I hadn't seen this movie yet until we did it for the podcast. That's another reason I pushed to do it for the podcast. I really, really wanted to have an excuse to finally watch fucking Green Room. Likewise. There are a lot of more recent films that have come out that I've been putting on the back burner, this being one of them, Get Out being one of them, although that one is still kind of hot off the press, you know what I mean? Right. But this one being one that I had heard of from uh, some co-workers and just outside of work as well, but I'm glad we're doing this. Well, here's the thing. I I already mentioned the fact that Anton Yelchin was in Star Trek, and the reason... Chekhov, right? He played Chekhov. was fucking great. He hilarious in that movie the reason i heard about this movie uh wasn't because of my love of horror movies but because i'm a giant fucking nerd and so it was kind of headlines when suddenly someone else known for star trek was suddenly in a horror movie i know right and fucking patrick stewart is the bad guy in it yeah he plays darcy i can't remember his last name oh shit me either darcy let's see if i got written down i'm not quite sure darcy banker but you're right. He starred as Captain Luke Picard in Star Trek. Jean-Luc the Picard. The new generation. Dude. And what was it also? Is it Deep Space Nine? I don't fucking remember. There's, an, there's another Star Trek series. And some of the movies. I'm, and I'm not the biggest Trekkie. I'm not either. One of my uncles, who got me really into horror films, was a huge Trekkie. Like, he grew up watching Shatner and mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy and all that. Good See, stuff. I did watch a lot of Next Generation, but... It was never a full episode. It was the show that was on when I would get home from school. So, like, it would already be, like, seven or eight minutes in. And some days I would catch it, and some days I wouldn't. And so I never saw, like, any of the... I don't know if there was overarching stories or if each one was a little bit more self-contained, but I never saw any of the... If there were overarching story arcs, 
I definitely never saw any of them all the way through, and a lot of the times I never saw the setup to the episode, never only the end. But I did see a lot of him as Picard, and I've I've always liked the guy. He's... Likewise, I'm very familiar with him as Luke Picard. The interesting thing about the reason he chose this part is he read the script and became a little transfixed with the thought of a villain that isn't loud and kind of authoritative, you know, like mm-hmm. a huge figure. And it gave him the creeps. He said he locked his doors and drank some scotch and all that good stuff and decided to give it a go. Well, see, here's the thing I thought about him in this entire movie as it was going through and he plays through from the beginning to end was huge fan of Sons of Anarchy. Likewise. Uh, and, and I mean, you know this, like, obviously our listeners, for the most part, haven't been in my house. But when you open up the door, the first thing you see opposite opening the door is the fucking Reaper and the Sons of Anarchy banner that one of my old roommates got me for, like, my birthday a few years ago. And I, all I could think of was, like, he could be, he could be the leader of the fucking, the white power faction on, on a show like Sons all day long. Uh, I would watch it. It would make, I mean, I don't, God, I can't think of his name, but I I have nothing bad to say about, uh, about the guy, the guy that played Darby in Sons of Anarchy. He was, uh, oh, why can't I think about it? He's, uh, assistant director Skinner in X-Files. Oh, Mitch Pelleggi? Yeah, Pelleggi. I I don't know why I couldn't think of that. Nothing against him, but I would have loved to see that role, or one of the higher-ranking roles, like the the white power guy from season two, given to Patrick Stewart now. Instead, I think he could hold it. I think he could be an overarching villain for, like, multiple seasons. No doubt. I would watch a story about his rise to power, because he was so fucking just cold and calculated, and would get heated for just a second, and he'd stop and reassess, and be like, okay, we need a plan, we need to do this. And he would just start getting all of his pieces together and immediately start working on it. But it's not like he didn't care, because he would have that second of being just like, oh shit, okay, this is what we have to do. It's a good point. When you think of Patrick Stewart, he does tend to play lead roles. Mm-hmm. I think he plays Professor Xavier in X-Men, mm-hmm. Logan, which you had covered in our a blog section on our website. God, I fucking love Logan. I actually, its price just dropped online just today, so I just actually ordered it on Amazon. It should be coming in in two days, and I'm just going to watch the fuck out of it. Three credits when I think of Patrick Stewart, which I think you might find interesting, is he was in the movie Dune, which we had briefly talked about. Right, okay. You know, in credits. He was in the movie Life Force. <laughs> Life Force with by Toby Hooper. Correct. Uh, which is about, like, Space vampires. It's a fucking terrible movie. Um, Not his most brightest shining stars. We that. might actually cover it at some point, but fun. if we don't, I don't mind plugging another podcast to tell you to go listen to the How Did This Get Made episode on it. It's amazing. They're a great podcast. And I, it's I, fucking I, hilarious. I concur. Uh, but it's a terrible fucking movie. It's great. I mean, it's great, but it's not at all great. Anyway, sorry. It's okay. Another film <clears throat> is Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Oh, yeah. At the end. Exactly. For like, you know, two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool. Yeah, no, He's it's still cool. In it, it's you know? cool. It is a funny take on it. And there's an actor, of course, that's in that, which hopefully we'll get to some of his films in, in the horror genre. I'll leave that up to Carrie Alvis. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe we'll get to some of those for Possibly. sure. Not anytime soon, but he, well, he that's the thing. His feet in it. I think it's funny because with both Anton Yelchin 
And with Patrick Stewart, Stewart, we've ended up having to bring up comedic roles, which another person who kills it in Green Room <laughs> is Aaliyah Shawkat. Yes. Who's probably best known as maybe Funke in Arrested Development. She does a great job. Oh, maybe we should like, so this movie is all about a punk band who goes to play a show. Kind of on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. Um, at like a, kind of like a neo-Nazi compound. That's what I would describe it as. And shit goes bad. That's I mean, really we'll, we'll get into the, the more of the plot, I guess, here in a second. But that's but, a good, kind of a short summary of what this film delves into. Yeah, shit goes really bad. Patrick Stewart is, like, the leader of the neo-Nazis. Aaliyah Shawkat and Anton Yelchin are both members of the band, as well as right. uh, two other cats that we haven't gotten to yet. No, but Aaliyah Shawkat, she plays Sam in this film, and you had mentioned that she was on the show Arrested Development as maybe Funky. She was also in the film Whip It with Drew Barrymore. Uh, she's in an episode of The League. I she can make it that is. right off the top of my head, because yeah. I fucking love that show. She's in an episode of Portlandia. Mm-hmm. She's in an episode of the show Animals, which is an animated show on HBO. I highly recommend that. If you like good comedy, and uh, you know you like to relax yourself before watching shows and or movies, it's a great one to watch it too. So I mentioned before, I didn't think Anton Yelchin would survive right. upon watching this. I thought she was going to be one of the survivors. It would make sense, thinking Final Girl, perhaps? Yeah, kind of Yeah, kind of in the vein of Final Girl, but just overall, kind of the way she was being presented as compared to the others. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of just felt like she, she would end up being one of the survivors. I felt like there'd be two survivors, and there is two survivors. There are, but not the two that we would think, perhaps. Right. She was also, I want to give her two more credits. She was in The Final Girls, and she's also in the movie The Runaways, which is based upon the, the band The Runaways, mm-hmm. with Joan Jett and Lita Ford and some others. But yeah, she was in that. So this gives credit to the fact that she actually plays her instrument in this movie, as does Anton Yelchin. Oh, yeah, nice. I, I guess I didn't realize that. Man, it's interesting. Oh, that's really cool. God, I guess, should we just finish rounding out the band then? Yeah, we can round out the band. I've got a few notes on these cats. Uh, We can get into Joe Cole, who plays Reese. You might know him uh, for doing shows such as Skins. I didn't think he was going to be a survivor, but I wanted him to be a survivor. Well, I thought for sure... I didn't think Anton Yelchin would survive. I can see that. I thought only a shot cat would survive. And then Joe Cole and Imogen Poots, I would have had to toss a coin between. I can see that. Definitely. Um, but I wanted Joe Cole to survive because I'm such a fan of his on Peaky Blinders. That was the other show I wanted to bring up. Fucking love him on Peaky Blinders. Yes. Unfortunately, he gets taken out almost right the fucking away. And I was like, God I know, damn right? it. It sucks. And even then, I was like, well... I hope he lives, because he's the one that didn't die right away. They fucking stab him a shit ton, or like four or five times, but he's still bleeding out. And they're trying to keep him somewhat alive, because time of death is better to be later for him. Right. With with the scene that they're trying to set up. But at the end, they do end up finishing him off before the others can get to him. So, God. But I was really hoping that somehow he would survive, just because I was like, God damn it, fucking John Shelby. It's a really good show. My sister got me into that show. And there's something else I want to mention about my sister later on when we get into the credits of Get Out. Another film people might be familiar with him in is Secret in Their Eyes. I'm not familiar with that. But there was a few credits I'm not very familiar with. Sorry, Joe Cole, I'm not. I'm familiar with the Joe Cole who's a soccer player. Uh, so, well, But that then- is no discredit to Joe Cole, the actor, because he does a really great job as Reese in this film. And Peaky Blinders as well. 
The other gentleman is Callum Turner, who plays Tiger in this film. And I thought I knew him from something, and then I realized I didn't when I was looking through his No, I wasn't very familiar with him, but he has been in Assassin's Creed with Michael Fassbender, which is a more which uh, contemporary film. I haven't film. watched yet, I haven't which either. I feel bad about because I'm a big We've fan probably, of the games. Yeah, so we probably both played the, the video game. He's also in uh, the film Victor Frankenstein. Which I haven't seen. Me either. And I'm not sure if this is a show. It might be a movie. It's called Tramps. It's another credit that he's uh, he's in that looked like a, a more major credit. No, that's a film. And I haven't watched The Borgias. Likewise. I haven't watched Lip- Ripper Street. Sorry. This, I, I, I did hear really good things about The Borgias. And I did always mean to go back and watch it at some point. But there's always so much shit coming out that I have not had any time to go do anything about that. You made a comment earlier that there's not enough time in the day to do all the things you want to do. And one of them, probably for both of us, is trying to catch up on the, all of these shows and movies. We can try, but there's no way. Man, uh, I, I thought I knew him from somewhere. but So everybody in this movie gives a fantastic performance. I totally agree. I haven't been able to shut up about this movie since I watched it earlier this I week. I have been... I've been fucking recommending it to everybody. And because we are we are doing two movies today, I do have to say, overall, I enjoyed Green Room more. It's maybe not too fair to compare them. They're quite a bit different. They are. But I, can, I can agree with ju- you on that. Just out, out of the fact that we're, we're doing two at the same time, had to enjoy one more than the other, right. I enjoyed Green Room more than Get Out. I believe I did as well. But that's no discredit to Get Out, because it's a good film as well. And I can absolutely really understand all the buzz for Get Out. Likewise. And holy cow. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Like I said, Green Room was the one that ended up not being as uh, racially charged as I thought it was going to be. Exactly. Likewise. Likewise. I, I was thinking it was going to be more uh, subculture in terms of skinheads and things like that. Well, and it seemed to me like a lot of the advertising for it and stuff played up. Kind of played it up. The fact that, yeah, Patrick Stewart's a fucking neo-Nazi and... They're they're trapped out with a bunch of neo Nazis and neo Nazis are bad and I'm well I'm like yeah I agree fuck racist marketing for you right <laughs> yeah we had mentioned this actress because she's in the film oh uh, Imogen Poots yes she plays the part of Amber in this film people might be familiar with her and her roles in the film V for Vendetta twenty eight weeks later she was also in the film Fright Night with Anton Yelchin we had mentioned yep. and David Tennant was in that film. Right. Me some tenant. She's in the movie Filth and the movie Need for Speed. I was about to say, there's honestly, she's been in a lot of stuff, she but the, those first things that you mentioned were the things that I knew her from. 28 Weeks Later, V for Vendetta. Could you check to see Fright if Night. the movie Need for Speed has Aaron Paul in it? Oh, I, I can you check to be sure, but I'm almost 100% positive that. Just that out is. of curiosity's sake, because there's a couple more ties yeah, to Breaking Bad. That's, that's the Aaron Paul. Okay. That's what I was Michael thinking. Michael Keaton, Need for Speed. <laughs> Speaking of Batman, there's a connection to the Batman franchise and a connection to the Breaking Bad franchise, which will be brought up again in just a little bit. But you're right, she plays the final girl in this film. Yeah, like I said, with her, I would have had to toss up a coin between her and Joe Cole. And I figured that if she didn't live then she would be like the last death of the group before before the rest, you know, they turn it around and either get out of there or get their revenge, which, as we know, they get their revenge. 
Yes, it's an interesting way of how they get the revenge, which we'll talk about. There's a few other credits I did want to give mention to. Macon Blair plays the part of Gabe in this film. He's been in a lot of the films with the director, who we'll mention here in just a little bit. But the films I'm going to mention are Blue Rain, the movie... Gabe, Gabe's the, the one at the end that survives, that goes off to call the cops? I believe you are correct. I okay. believe you're correct. Yeah, I... That sounds right. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, I believe you are correct. He played in the movie Murder Party and the movie Gold, which Matthew McConaughey is in, which gives us another oh. tie into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. Right. And the whole reconnaissance. Yeah, precisely. Another actor in this film is Eric Edelstein. He plays Big Justin. Oh, I like him. He does a good job in this film. I like Eric Edelstein whenever he shows up in something. I was really excited to see him in this. Our audience might be familiar with him in the movie Jurassic World. Perhaps The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. Perhaps in the TV show Shameless. He's also done work, which we'll talk about here in just a little bit, on the Key and Peele show. I believe he was on the show Good Dick, and he lends a voice on an animated series. It's a cross between a child show and perhaps adult humor. The show is called We Bear Bears. And bear in the middle, like the We Bear, Mm-hmm. means they're not wearing clothes, right? Or uh, they're exposed. Yeah, the naked My nephews bears. watch that. Gotcha. I've woken up a couple of times from crashing out at my sisters and brother-in-laws and that show being on in the morning. So I'm familiar with that show a little bit. Didn't know he he lended the voice, but... Yeah, yeah, I mean, and he does a lot of voice work overall, too. He does. Uh, he certainly does. Another credit I wanted to give mention to is the actor David W. Thompson. He plays Tad in this film. He's also done films with our director, the film Blue Ruin. He was in the film Win Win with... Oh, Tad was the kid in the beginning, right, with the mohawk? Yeah. Okay. He's the punk kid. He was in the movie Win Win. It's about the, the wrestling kid who befriends, I think, a teacher or a mentor of some sort. Paul Giamatti is, is the guy he's in the film with. Okay. He's also in the film Coin Heist and The Outcasts, so people might be familiar with him in that. He's also a stand-up comedian, which I thought was pretty cool. Oh. Mark Weber plays Daniel, the uncle, I think, or... Cousin. Cousin, something, something like, like that. that, to Tad. He's the traitor. He was in the film Scott Pilgrim. Oh, the band. shit, you're right. Oh my god, this entire time I was looking at him, it I was like, familiar, right? ah, man, I know that cat. Mm. There was only a couple people I actually looked up, though. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I was reading a little bit about his bio, his biography. Mm-hmm. I believe it's him. If I, if not, I, I apologize in advance, but I'm almost certain it's, it's Mark Weber. He had a rough upbringing in Philadelphia. Like His mother was a you know, single mother, and they were living in and out of cars. Was it like, in, was it in West Philadelphia that he was born, born and raised? Born and raised on the playgrounds. That's where he's <laughs> his days. But giving credit to where credit is due... He does a good job in Scott Pilgrim. He was in the movie 13 Sins. He was in a children... Well, you can call it a, a kid's movie. Not child's, a kid's movie. Snow Day, you might be familiar Ooh. with. And he's in another film called Jezebel, which I believe is a horror film. I'm not familiar with it, just saw that it was a credit, and then I started seeing some of the photos. I was like, hold on, this might be a horror film. Okay. Yeah, because there's a struggle in one of the pictures I'd seen, and it wasn't a regular struggle because the person he was struggling with looked like a demon. <laughs> Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not your normal struggle. I was like, hold on. Yeah, that might be a horror Demon film. usually means, yeah, not a normal struggle. Kind of rounds out my cast. Yeah, no, um... 
I did want to I talk about the director. Yeah, talk about the director, and then we'll sort of talk I'll about the movie a little through this. bit. Yeah, because it, it, then it'll be a lot easier for us to talk about the film. Jeremy, well, I want to give props to him too because of some of the things he, he did. A great so. job. Like we said, he was the director of Blue Ruin, Murder Party. It was the film that I mentioned some of the actors had been in with him. He also wrote this film. The cinematographer, or our DP in this film, was Sean Porter. He's done things such as 20th Century Woman, Kumiko, The Treasure Hunter, and Eden, some of his films. The music was done by Brooke and Will Blair. They're the Blair brothers. They've worked on films with Jeremy Saulnier in Blue Ruin, Murder Party. I don't feel at home in this world anymore. I really wish that they would start a project about witches. That'd be pretty awesome. Right. Why not? Their name fits the the title. Production companies are Broadway Pictures and Film Science. Distributors are A24, which we've mentioned previously in some of our podcasts. Oh, with Tusk. Yeah. They've, they're hitting on You know, park, I didn't yeah. mention with Tusk, and I doubt that they did the same thing with Green Room. Although they probably could have with, with the name. But if I remember right, that they're, just to add on even more just random trivia about Tusk, because apparently we didn't do it, enough of it in our three-hour episode we did last week. <laughs> or, yeah, we did. Or two weeks ago or whatever it was. But if I remember correctly, they also worked with some of the weed dispensaries in the area and put out two strains that's name sort of corresponded to Tusk. One was had something to do with walrus and one was more just like VSQ related or something like that. But I can't remember what they were now, but I think I, Kev, I'm pretty sure, talked about it on one of the Babylons. That's pretty cool. We can possibly plug that in somewhere later on in one of our podcasts or on our page. Or we can find some and smoke some before one of the shows. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> So, A24, they did help with the 2016 USA theatrical release. XYZ Films also helped with the USA release of all media platforms. I believe Blu-ray and DVD, if I'm not mistaken. Special effects teams are Prosthetic Renaissance. They're responsible for the makeup and prosthetics for special effects. 67 Nights are the visual effects team. Mighty Coconut, Mechanism Digital, and Final Frame are responsible for additional effects on this film. The release date here in the States was May 13th, 2016, on a budget of $5 million. It grossed $3.22 million as of July 10th, 2016. And Wikipedia, that being that is, reported that they grossed about $3.8 million, I think, of August of 2016. So almost $4 million. So they've almost earned their money back on this film. We do like taglines. The tagline for this, Now, whatever you say or did is no longer my concern. But, let's be clear... It won't end well. It's a long one. I would never be able to remember that, ever. No, but it would look pretty cool on a poster, which the poster for this film has a scene... I think it might be Anton. Okay. If you look at the poster for it, which we are, it looks like he has a machete. Oh, yeah, That's yeah. an homage to the sex... No, no, the Clash. Excuse me, London oh, Calling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's Paul Simonon, the bassist. He's smashing the, the bass. That's right. Yeah, so that's... Uh, uh, that's cool. If you look at it, that's what it's about. Well, I like that poster even more now, now that I realize yeah. that. So there's... Oh, that's perfect. Now some that musical references that. when you know when you look at things like this in that context. Well, we mentioned before that... Oh, my technical that, notes. That's the thing. There's the technical notes. So the thing about this movie, first off for me, is that... God, we keep coming back. There's two movies that we keep coming back to that you showed me through this podcast that I fucking love, that I keep talking about. But it reminded me of Found, and it reminded me of Martyrs. 
with Found, it reminded, especially the first half of the movie, the way that the director would do like a lot of just like slow establishing shots of like the group and like scenery with just the music going in the background reminded me of that whole end scene in Found where he's just narrating before you actually like see all the fucked up shit. There's a particular scene, I'm glad that you bring that up. There's a scene with, I think it's Anton Yelchin in the van, where they're just kind of driving, and you get those scenes where it's just, you're getting more of a, a build of these characters, who they are, what their life is about, and the way that it's shot, it does remind me of Found. It's a good way of bringing that up. And it reminded me a lot of Martyrs with sort of just the way the violence is presented. I, I did see see something in an interview where the director was saying, well, yeah, this movie's brutal, but it's not sadistic. And the fact is, uh, it's a point that he made, and something I noticed the entire way through, once, once somebody's dead, you almost never see them again. Unless something is being shown for, to make an absolute point, and at which point you see as absolute little of them as possible. It's not like glorifying or lingering on the death. You just have this brutal event happen, and then it's done. And he said it was kind of his way of showing, like, the only, the only pointless death is the one that, that started it all off. The rest are all the results of, like, these dominoes that are just falling into place because of that one stupid, like, act of aggression, random aggression. And, like, yes, all these other ones could be prevented by somebody acting in a fucking sane manner, but uh, you can still at least try to rationalize the others in the face of what's happening and, and the situation that they're in. I'm glad you brought that up. He also mentioned the fact that as he was writing the script, the screenplay for this film, is he didn't have particular characters in mind as the final people. Mm-hmm. He just wrote until he felt like he wrote a character into a corner, and it felt natural that this is how he would have to finish them. Not necessarily that that's how he wanted to, to end them, it just happened to be that's how he wrote the script. It's like, all right, well, I have to get rid of this character. And yeah. I think that's a good point that he didn't linger on the fact that he had to get rid of him and build this uh, this connection, perhaps. Well, that's kind of neat. I see. I didn't I didn't de- dig that deep into it, but that kind of makes sense to me with, with one of the things that really came through in the writing of this movie to me. And one of the reasons why I've been recommending it so much is that the movie really shows humanity and reasoning the people might not always be making the best choices but with a combination of the outstanding acting and the information you're being given the little bit of exposition you do have as well as some of just the vagueness because you only know as much as the group knows at any given time throughout this movie it's a very poignant point there's a couple times you know where like a setup is going to happen on them they'll cut out to like patrick stewart explaining something but even he doesn't know all the information until towards the end and so there's some information that it's not it's not cheap like it's being introduced later just to fill in a gap it's helped put all these things into play it's just that none of the people that know it have shown up yet it's a clever way of writing for Saulnier because it does give a humanizing factor to all of these characters that none of them come in with these unexpected you know like these superhuman abilities of logic and reasoning you had mentioned the fact that they're just ordinary people put in extraordinary situations and how do they resolve these conflicts yeah, how do they realizing well and the other thing they're doing is they're also not doing just standard stupid horror movie stuff they're not being stupid for the sake of being stupid if they make a bad decision it was wasn't a bad decision it was just a risky risky decision that went bad they knew that there was a chance but there's they're put in a position where there's not any good choices either really 
especially with just like the fear creeping in because they're a bunch of fucking kids Super like early young. 20s like it, you'd have to guess by by this movie depicting their characters the, yeah, yeah they, their they characters they would be early 20s, early 20s i would highly imagine mm-hmm. and they were just normal kids in a punk band put into into a position because they're low on funds trying to play or support an album they were trying to drop without spreading it through massive media social media they just trying to do to it the shows. old school way the From true diy punk way precisely so they got put into a position due to the fact that the kid Tad, who we meet early on, he he's hosting them. It looks, I'm not sure exactly. Might be in Portland. In no, area. it was in the area, but I and I can't remember. They might have even said where they were, but it, it's not the the big the big problem is that they went out of their way to do this, and the show sucked. They barely made thir- they didn't even make thirty bucks between the four. Yeah, of them. I think they broke it down to the fact that if they split it all. Up, amongst themselves it was like 688 if you rounded it up so if you do the math they made like maybe 27 28 dollars yeah right and they had already siphoned fuel just to get there because they had crashed out and left the car lights on and it was still running i suppose yeah so, so they were put in the, in the dire situation and he and that's the thing though he tried he did he and definitely that's, I guess that's what gets to the part where it's an unfortunate cross of cultures is because unfortunately in that part of the punk scene, you do have to deal with the fact that there's a lot of fucking white supremacists that are also into that part of the punk scene. And there's a lot of crossover. And when he brings that up, they're, they're even like, yeah, you have to deal with one or two at every show. That's, that's not a big deal. Like, I think the reason being that some of those hints about that culture within the skinhead and punk movement is that you will run into an occasional character within those subculture movements. The director himself grew up in the D.C. area, Washington, D.C., that is. And he had even made mention of the fact that you would run into skinheads and whether it's ultra-left, conservative, mm-hmm. you know, skinheads, whatnot, neo-Nazis white nationalist you name it because okay, there's all sorts of different breeds and stripes and they they right. name off a couple things and i'm still curious as to why they'd be worried if it was sharps but given you know given the the, the fact maybe he wasn't worried he was just asking i guess but he, maybe he was just trying to fill out like what kind of show they were going to play or what mm-hmm. kind of crowd because all have. he said was boots and bracers so <laughs> yeah exactly i guess that could mean anything within that culture right yeah but leading into that fact was the fact that they were going to make $350 for that show. They were going to play in front of Boots and Bracers. Bracers being suspenders. Right. Our the, American audience. You know, and the, the Boots being Doc Martens and the different colored laces indicating. Depicting different and that, things. So that's one of the things. I don't want to touch on it too much because we might we actually. a little bit into it. We might actually go come back to Green Room because yes. we might know somebody that has even a little bit more insight to some of the, some of the things presented in this movie. But we're going to skim over some of this stuff really quick because it is kind of important throughout the course of the movie. Traditionally, and from what I understand, is that it's still very... It's always been very regional, but it's now even more splintered, and it's a little bit more personal preference these days. But white laces, white suspenders would be like white power, white pride. Makes total sense. And the way that they lace up the boot, too, with the white, right. isn't it in a crisscross pattern. It's more of a vertical complex, if you want to call it mm-hmm. that. And I think, depending on, I think depending on where you're at, it even matters whether you're doing the 14 or the 18 whole Martins. Like I said, th- there's a, a lot of, yeah, there's lots of different regional variants and shit. We but. could honestly have a whole show dedicated just to symbolism and 
all of these different different meanings within these subcultures. Red laces, white bracers would mean both white pride and that you've spilled blood for the cause. Although there are some regional variants where red simply means that you can be proven to have German ancestry. That's interesting. I did not know that. I but for the most part, the, the in almost almost all variations, you have to earn red. Makes sense. And I think, if I remember right, red laces and red bracers is that you've spilled blood and you're always down to fight, something like that. Hmm. Uh, it's a good point that you made that we have reserved the right in previous podcasts to come back to films for further analysis, more interpretation, because we're learning things all the time, even on films that we've done previously. And I've heard two different variations, but there there is usually a variation of some sort in a lot of places for if you've killed a cop for the cause, too. Mm. And I've heard it being blue docks instead of the standard black with red laces. And I've heard it being the normal black docks with yellow laces. But then I heard also a lot of people laughing at the idea of a fucking white nationalist having yellow laces. So, <laughs> Black and yellow, black and yellow. Right. <laughs> it's still an interesting concept because you and I and anybody else who's familiar with pop culture or just culture in general especially here in the United States you see this in gang related activity with different color attire you see it like I said in this particular subculture with skinheads black tends to be pretty neutral so if you guys are worried about it go with black laces on your docks exactly though there's there are certain clothing that you can wear where it has an apolitical stance, right? So you're very neutral, you know? So if you're if you're concerned and you know that you're going to go into these events not knowing exactly what you get yourself into, make sure you do a little research. Yeah, please. and that's one of the things, like, this is where... This is where we might actually start to be able to transition to get out a little bit, to be honest. And, I don't know, sort of... Sort of just sort of the interesting, weird cross-cultural things having to do with these movies. Because, like, Get Out plays a lot with... First, I mean, we bring an interesting perspective, I think, to these movies. We both do. Because you're from a little bit larger area than me. A little bit bigger population than my town of, like, 600. I think one of my schools had that many kids in at least one of the grades. So I'm going to guess just by by sheer population, you came from a far more diverse area than me. Without a doubt. Considering that I'm from the southeast and you're where I'm at now here in Montana. So there's quite a huge disparity in terms of the, the mix of cultures that you get in these areas. Yeah, I'm from Montana. Grew up here in Montana. There is a little bit of diversity. We have reservations there around. There's actually like a few Filipino families in, in the town I grew up in. Korean family, a few others. But for the most part, it's, it's almost all white. That was something on the way over. I was thinking about some of the things that you and I would have a more firsthand account. And one of the, them being the fact that when I was driving here, being that we are here in Missoula, and this is a predominantly white state, what, do you, what would you consider 90 plus percent of the population here in yeah. Montana is white? Um, and, and I thought about and that. And here's the fun thing. You're from the far more diverse area. Yeah. And you're white. Yeah. But I honestly... I can, and I put my hand up to whatever imaginary fairy god that you believe in, that when I changed schools, in, from elementary to junior high, I, I changed districts, I went from a more inner city school to a more rural school, <laughs> changing, changing districts, even though they were maybe 
a 15 minute drive apart, these schools. And being that there wasn't a very large diversity in the rural school that I went to, it was mainly black and or white, you know, mm -hmm. the mix of the school. If you had a slight variance, even if you looked kind of Asian, which when I was younger, I looked a lot more Asian, being that my, my mom's side of her family, most of them are Asian, okay. you know, Japanese. So some of my family members, immediate family members, we have that. But long story short is I've been a victim of being what I used to jokingly refer to as the cousin and our brother Bruce Lee wow. <laughs> more, on more than one occasion. I'd like to see little young Danny pictures now. Oh, That'd be I, really interesting. There are some around. I'll I'd have like to, to see little young you. Danny pictures now. Now, I pass pretty well for around here, but especially when it's getting to be this time of year with a lot of sun out, I most notably am very much mixed race. But the fun thing, the funny thing is I was... I definitely have been the victim of racism over the course of my life and shit. But the fun part, I think, is that I was kind of raised, like, white. Well, likewise. Like, my my old roommate, who you guys met, Jesse, like, there was times when he was living here, like, I'd go back home, see my family in the summer and shit. He'd text me, like, yo, dude, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, dude, having a great time. Like, just got back, hanging out with my little brother. We're going out getting crawdads. It's like, what? Yeah, it basically his response would be like, you're you're doing what? I'd be like, well, I'm going getting crawdads. And I'm pretty sure I gave him, like, the smart-ass, like, I'm going and I'm, like, wading into the river and I'm flipping over rocks really carefully and I'm looking to see if they're there. And if they're there, I'm trying to be wily enough to grab the little fuckers and pop them into my bucket <laughs> so we can go boil them up later. At this point, some of our listeners might be thinking, that sounds super redneck. Let me let me correct. Oh yeah, yeah. A, I wasn't I wasn't raised white. I was raised redneck. Here's something to keep in <laughs> mind: is that there's a lot of population in the United States. Doesn't have to be in the southeast. Doesn't have to be here in Montana. Anywhere you go, northeast, midwest, southwest, doesn't matter. California, you're gonna find rednecks. It's just what happens. So I'm familiar with looking for crawdads and you name it. Oh yeah, was all that good stuff. The fun thing to do is go, go out mudding. God damn! Yeah. I I got my first gun when I was five years old. I've been shooting my entire life. Like, I, I was raised pretty fucking redneck. My little brother is even more redneck than me. Like, takes his three wheeler out around town. Back when he had it, I think he sold it off. Now that he's all settled down with the family and shit. But I had a unique <clears throat> mix growing up with a predominantly European family. Uh, being my grandmother's from Germany, but also living out in the state park and then going to a rural school where you had those elements of, you know, country lifestyle and just real simplicity and just going out, having a good time out in nature, just digging holes and, like you said, just digging in mud, playing in the creek or crick. <laughs> crick. <laughs> You're more familiar with it's that. It's a crick. You know, so it's just things like that. It's like I said, there's there's a lot more that we have in common throughout the country if we keep putting these little stupid labels on each other. Yeah. You know, that's being one of them. Redneck isn't... It's but not the fact is, one reason. Uh, the point I was going to try to make to get it back towards Green Room was that even with that, at a certain point, like, yeah, it was, it was kind of evident that I was a mixed race and you can get some shit here and there because it is a predominantly white area. And one of the things I kind of had to end up looking out for was being able to, to notice that different shit, like these different signifiers. And like you said, you can do an entire fucking episode on talking about all the different ways that people represent they're affiliated with this thing or that thing, but shit like boots and bracers had to be able to watch out for. It's really weird because we, we're probably in the most progressive city in the state. 
and we work at one of the most progressive places in that city. I wouldn't even say in the country for that matter. And a couple summers ago, there was a customer that would come in kind of regularly throughout the summer. Whenever he'd come in, I'd be like, hey guys, I'm going to go to the back for a little bit. I'm like, I just, I don't want to interact with this guy. And people would be like, well, what's going on? I'd be like, well... Well, what do you see? Like, well, he's the dude was like six foot four, shaved head, but it looked like he was probably balding anyway. Fucking muscular as shit, looked like a big ass fucking Viking almost. And be like, well, he's kind of a scary looking guy, but like you're kind of a scary looking guy too, and like you're cool with everybody. Like, what's why hanging out? And I'm like, well, if you take a look at his arm there, like he's got a giant fucking Thor's hammer. And they're like, yeah, so what? I'm like, well, if you look at the other arm peeking out from underneath his fucking underneath his sleeves, there's a couple lightning bolts. And they're like, yeah? And I'm like, well, peeking out from underneath his fucking collar there, there's also a fucking swastika that you guys didn't notice. It's like, so you're trying to tell me that he's into... What is it, go back to Hinduism? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he likes lightning bolts because he's into Tesla? <coughs> and he and they looked the pretty prison-y. No, and I was just like... You know what? Here's the thing. Like, he might be in here because now he's reformed and just hasn't gotten that stuff covered up yet. But, and he's obviously cool enough that he goes through, like, our checkouts that has, like, we have some other minorities, people of color employed that are even more obvious than me because I kind of pass with my big ass beard and shit. And he obviously never started any shit with them that I ever heard about. But I was also just like, look, guys, like, especially if he did get those in prison, he might have had to earn those. And I just don't want to deal with that. There are a lot of risks that you take not knowing people's situations. And it's not due to the fact that you're you're passing these judgments. It's just knowing the facts that what what they might be. You don't know per, per se. But why put yourself in a situation where you don't know what's going to come to light? You know, regardless of, regardless of that person's situation. I can understand completely. There's just some people you don't really want to interact with. No. And whatever. And I mean, they, they use they use those symbols and shit as means of intimidation and shit. And I guess it worked. But like, if I had to wait on them, I wouldn't have had any problem with it. I just had the choice. So I was like, yeah. fuck it. Somebody else can take care of it. I, I don't things, want to deal with yeah, it. Yeah, you've got other things you can take care of mm-hmm. in the meantime. Big deal. I'll but still be doing my job. I just won't be doing it around this fucker. So. Yeah. Here's something too about Green Room that I thought was kind of cool. I was reading an interview with the director himself. And he had mentioned the fact, you know, they use dogs in the film. But he talks about the reason why he used them. Because his daughter actually was bitten by, uh, I think it was a lab. Okay. So he would mentioned that. But he, he was thinking about certain images that we have in society with dogs in general, whether they're pit bulls or just certain breeds, right? But he made mention of the fact that a lot of these breeds are man, you know, produced. It has to be kind of carried on through mm-hmm. our methods of breeding. And then when you think of, like, fighting breeds, that's all man-created. So we kind of perpetuate these things on other beings or other animals, things that we feel may be inferior to us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Another possible theme being that this is a, a skinhead movement dealing with more of a, a nationalistic, I would imagine, approach, white nationalistic. Right. Um, which also, they feel that they're a superior race. That's the whole kind of MO for this operation, right? Well, I think the fun, the funny thing, too, is 
And it's kind of, I feel like it's kind of a recurring thing depicting skinheads in media, partially because it's absolutely true in a lot of respects, I think, is that the true believers are the ones that tend to lie in the middle portion. The guys running the operation, they're interested in using the true believers because they're making fucking heroin in the basement. Yeah, which is a big reveal (laughs) toward the end of the film. It's it's not all what it appears to be, right? It's not just a neo-Nazi compound per se. And that's some of that information that's spurring it all on. That's why they can't have a murder investigation going on here that's why they can't have this and that is because this is all happening obviously really bad for the band really bad for the girl that got killed and for her situation and her lovers and stuff but also at the same time it's a really bad situation for the neo-nazis yeah for everybody that's involved and that's why they're kind of freaking out and you kind of get to see that they're and that's what makes patrick stewart so scary is that he's able to come in and grab control of that situation and be like okay you fucked up here but i understand what you're trying to do but now we have to work with these elements let's get all these guys together i need these people you need to tell me who all knows like i like his interactions with the band as well when he has to have those interactions because it's very methodical it's very planned it's very coordinated too like he's manipulating the whole time but the way he he's doing is you can't really tell that on the other side of the wall or the other side of the room that he's trying to try to do that to these kids did you list off the actor that played the guy that that trains the dogs i can't remember his name and you probably did Hmm. but i'm not sure if it's I can't remember which which character does that. I can't but, remember if it's Daniel that does that or if it's... I can't remember his name. Um either way, he does a fantastic job and when I was mentioning before like I would love to see Patrick Stewart as like a fucking Aryan Brotherhood boss on like a crime series like Sons of Anarchy. It would be with the caveat that he would still have to have that guy as his right hand man because they made such a chilling awesome team and how methodical he was as well like how many shots do you have three but then you have one extra big justin was pretty boss i liked him oh a lot. big justin was boss too i like the big guy justin. who was in the green room that was a part of the band Cowcatcher, i think oh yeah his name was worm in the film the actor's name is uh brent versner or Wersner. he did a really good job at he being was like fucking scary when super he... intimidating the scene that he had with anton yelchin that's what i was just about to Holy say shit, he's like dude. that's a song I, a good song that's yeah, what I did her too. Down. Well, he had asked him on the way out because this is where they have that interaction where Sam played by Elliot Shawcat. She leaves her phone in the green room after their performance. So Anton Yelchin goes in to go get the phone. That's where you find the dead girl. That's where you find the band that's going on stage or waiting to go on stage. I do want to say just while we're talking about this section that that was the only one that sort of pushed it a little bit for me. Like I said, this, this movie's writing really showcases the humanity, why they make the decisions they make, all of that very, very well. Except the one that almost pushed it for me was his idea to start fucking calling the police right in front of them all and run out of the room like as panicked as he was like at least run out of the room first so they can't see what he's doing or maybe what he even had like if he grabbed it quick enough maybe they won't see what he had he can start calling a little bit more discreetly yeah i would have just turned around like oh okay bye (laughs) if you know given the circumstances there's no telling probably shut our pants but that gentleman the guy who plays Worm in that scene, the lead singer of, the, I, I guess, the band. Cowcatcher. Cowcatcher. He goes up to Anton. He asks him what song they play, like the second song from the last. Anton tells him Toxic Evolution. He's like, that was a good song. He's like, that was the song that we offered to. Mm-hmm. 
I'm like, God damn it. Yeah, That's dude, intense. he was fucking scary. He was scary. And like I said, the director said his act of the aggression was the only one that wasn't. And even that was kind of provoked because he found out that his girl was leaving him. And we find out who she was leaving with. Who they were supposed to go to. Which, when that finally came oh. up, that made that, f- when they first showed up, make so much more sense. Because the dude said something about, oh, something, gonna meet up with your girl or something. And he immediately got in his face, like, don't you fucking talk about her. Like, Not only that, but the kid, Tad, mentioned that he's kind of, like, vacuum up because they're gonna come over, like, date mm-hmm. on his girl or whatever he said. But you're right, he mentions that in the beginning. He's like, don't you fucking mention that. And I was like, dude, and I didn't even catch what he what he heard, said the first time I, I was There was a playing movie, it. it was Tiger who had made a brief mention of something about a girl, like, in case the... He didn't get to finish his comment, but the guy, like, boom, was in his face. Yeah, and suddenly that made so much more sense. You're like, oh, shit. And it all sort of gradually clicked together. I just really fucking liked it. Yeah, God. The scene, too, with that, I don't know if it was a knife that was in her head or like a... a oh, and he... That's one of the only times you see wow. a dead body and it's only because he's making a point once again. Yeah, they're like, well, how do we know she's dead? We didn't see any blood. Well... That was pretty intense. The director had mentioned that he had seen a crime documentary where something of that nature happened and he wanted to portray it on film. Oh, okay. So that's where he got the idea from. He was also heavily influenced by a film I'd mentioned. I can't remember which podcast, but I mentioned the film Straw Dogs with okay. Dustin Hoffman's like ultra-violent 1970s film. But he, being the director, was heavily influenced by that film to do this film. Oh, that's cool. What was I going to say about that? Well, that, though, ties in, and what you said about the dogs, and I just want to... A big part of this movie is that it has fan... It doesn't linger on the corpses, but it has fantastic, brutal gore effects when it does have them. People getting blasted in the fucking face. Throats torn out by dogs. Fucking... There's some pretty intense scenes, even like the gutting scene. The gutting. Oh my god. Dude, how many people does Imogen Poots kill in this movie? Because she... She slits two guys' throats. She double taps that one kid. Yeah. She, she opens the dude up. Yeah, that was the first one. She, she opened, yeah. So she that's, slit the other guy's throat that came in with the kid with the bracers on. Right. Then she double taps that kid in the neck and the head. Yep. She it's least responsible for the guy at the end with Patrick Stewart. But, well, yeah, because she shotties. She shotties yeah. the dog guy, right? She shot. She shoots him, and then the other guy charges. I think she shoots him, and then they both open. They up both fire open on up Patrick on. Stewart. And that's another insanely human moment of the movie where Patrick Stewart at the end sort of, he can't take it all anymore and he just starts walking off and they start shooting. But he does pull his gun out. He pulls his gun out and they start shooting. He does start, he tries to run when he first starts getting hit, but that's obviously not working. (laughs) So he turns around and tries to shoot, but he's done for. I like how Patrick Stewart gets offed Mm -hmm. right in the temple. But the way it's presented, it's such a human moment because he just he's he keeps trying to give this front, keeps trying to give this front. And he finally just breaks and he just turns around and just starts walking. There were two guys who tried to help out within that complex, right? Daniel being one of the characters, the guy at the beginning who meets them, the, the band that is, and Gabe. It was Gabe, the mm-hmm. other guy who was trying to help them out, who eventually goes to get help. Like we need cops or police. Or that something. was the other awesome thing with the writing was that Gabe's arc was really subtle, but you could really watch him throughout the movie, sort he of was slowly. Throughout realize how shitty all these people are and and how bankrupt of a person morally bankrupt of a person patrick stewart is and how will it like in the beginning gabe's willing just as willing to sell out people as he is 
Because he, he's the one, like, goes and gets the fucking dog guy to get money to pay off the kids to fucking stab each other and shit. And that's before Darcy even shows up. But at a certain point, he's like, what the fuck are we doing? And, like, Patrick Stewart keeps giving all these commands and this and that. And he's st- starting to see the aftermath of it all. And he's like, what the fuck? Am- I'm done. Like, by the end of it, when he's cleaning the place, he's like, he was already done. He was just doing that on reflex. He doesn't want to get arrested. Yeah. That was his biggest thing. He just didn't want to go to jail. Because you know what happens in jail with certain subcultures, which we've talked about. If you're in a a skinhead movement and you go to jail, you stick to your own kind, and then you have everybody else as an enemy, essentially. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd like those odds. No. But the point being, too... Off and on, you might end up like being friendly with the Mexican mafia. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, too. I mean, there are certain factions. Mm -hmm. Which I've always found really weird, but... Well, they say... uh, the enemy I think of my enemy. Something like that, but I think, I'm trying to remember how it works. Friend. Like, I've watched a lot of these fucking, like, gang documentaries and prison documentaries and shit. And if I remember right, is it, like, the Mexican mafia often hires the Aryan Brotherhood as, like, muscle and shit? Something like that? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking out my ass, but that sounds yeah. correct. It's okay. We can, we can beef up on that later on. <laughs> uh, there was a few th- other things I did want to mention out, too, before we conclude this particular section with Green Room, was the fact that they were going to use those kids' vans as a way to set them up as trespassers. Like, they came up from out of town, they hold themselves up with a firearm, but then they also have those siphoning mechanisms of the They, they were the trespassing, and the dogs were out and guarded their property. Right. Here's something, I don't know if you caught, it, it took me the second time to catch it. There's an early scene with Tad interviewing the band, yeah. which they call themselves the Ain't Right, mm-hmm. and he told them whenever it was going to be released, what station would be on. So at the end, after Patrick Stewart gets shot and Anton Yelchin's character Pat and Amber they're talking but there's a real quick pan I don't know if it's of the the, one of the vans or trucks or whatever but you can actually hear a snippet of that interview being played that's neat yeah so I caught that and it and the movie ends on a really dark comedic note I I do like it really dark comedic line I wrote it down you can tell it to someone who gives a shit right something like that do you remember what he was mentioning yeah is he finally figured out his fucking island band yeah his island band so Tad running joke throughout the movie he couldn't figure it out and finally all of his friends are dead and he's trying to tell like saying minor threat who was another one prince one of the kids. I think well, are, are you t- are you talking about the first time that they get said it, or what the real things were before they think they're all, all about to go out and die? Before they die, <laughs> right? Yeah, because their answers are different during yeah. the first one. Well, the one kid still says misfits. It was minor threat. Oh, was it my, okay. Yeah, it was totally minor threat. One had Black Sabbath, but he changed it to Prince. To Prince. I think that was Joe Cole's character. Tiger was the one who was big on minor threat. Minor threat. threat. Aaliyah Shawkat, I think she She went her from her first one. Simon or Simon Garfunkel? Maybe? Yeah, it ended up being Simon Garfunkel, and what she said the first time around was... Oh, fuck. I can't remember the first time. Me either. I wish I would written it down. But it was funny because that was the final line. He's like, oh, I think I finally figured out my island man. And she says, well, tell someone to give oh, a shit. And Imogen Poots did weigh in with... She didn't give one. She gave Madonna and Slayer. Yeah. It was mentioned in like some of these trivia notes. Which I did notice that when they went out, what was playing in the background was War Ensemble by Slayer. Because I'm yeah. like, yeah, there's War some, Ensemble. There's some interesting little nuggets. Like you said, that we're open to come back to because there's a lot of things that we really haven't talked about symbolism-wise. I'll give a real brief mention of this. Is There's a real quick scene when the band, the Ain't Right, say, 
when they first get in the complex or in the green room, I can't remember if it's Anton Yelchin. One of the the characters goes over and there's a cabinet with a lot of stickers, like oh, blasted dude, all a over shit it. Ton, yeah. I was I looking paused, all over the place. I paused it for a quick second and I noticed, like, of course, the lightning bolts. Yeah, there's the there's SS. the swatch stickers. There's an '88. I don't know. If- I was gonna say that's the other thing. Like, and this kind of this is another thing that sort of ties in actually to to get out, which we'll get to is some of the weird differences and having to have to look out for some of these things sometimes because even just a couple weeks ago i was coming back to town i I mentioned that i went to spokane and shit i'm coming back to town with my girlfriend and we're pulling into town and we're behind this rig and they had customized plates and we were trying to figure out what it said and we, we just couldn't figure it out but 88 was part of it oh shit but it it didn't look it wasn't Taylor Hart Jr. It, no, 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 no. <laughs> but but that's the thing. It also didn't look to me from what I was seeing on there. It also didn't look like it was like white nationalist Possibly, shit. Yeah. But I, I sort of mentioned. I'm like, well, God, hopefully it's not the, the worst part. What, what no. worst? What it could be? And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, 88. I'm like that's that's H H. That's Hall Hitler. Like a lot of these dickwads use that shit. Like they I, do I don't think that one is one. But number coding for letters and etc. But that is being a big one. That was one that I didn't notice. The spider web or like even the spider. I, I noticed that a couple of times, mm-hmm. and it has an, uh, something to do with the fact that they've committed murder within the white nationalist movement. And once again, I think it depends on what clique exactly you belong to, too. But I totally agree. But there are a lot of things, like I said, I'm not an expert at. I don't even claim to be. I know you don't either. We've made mention of that, a big disclaimer, that we're no experts. We just, we're just nerds who like to geek out on certain things and research things. But the point being is that there's a lot of things inside both of these films that if you catch them first time around, kudos to you you have a photographic memory it does take a couple of views to kind of fully get grasp all the different symbology i did notice oh god i felt bad because i thought it actually looked kind of cool whoever and i'm sure it's been around for a long time but i'd never seen anybody do it before but whoever combined the iron cross with the swaths i know what you mean yeah that was pretty cool oh that i I was just like god they're dickwads but it looks fucking neat (laughs) just like the film that we're about to delve into there's a lot of things that are stolen within movements in terms of symbology and and certain symbols themselves that have been like i said kind of captured in a sense that Mm -hmm. they don't mean what they used to mean they've taken on a whole different meaning that's true and you know what we swastika being a huge one huge one uh we keep touching more and more on get out let's just start getting into it i I, I, let's say go watch green room we love check green room out Compare, contrast our notes, and then check out Get Out, which we're about to delve into. Let's get into Get Out uh, right now. So we're going to get in to Get Out. Nah. See what I did there? I like it, though. But you're right. We're in the second part of our double feature with Jordan Peele's Get Out from 2017. Right. I fucking love me some Key and Peele, son. Key and Where do you remember seeing at least those two guys? Because, I mean, they're usually in tandem, but where do you remember first seeing them? Key and Peele. Key and Peele show? Yeah. Okay. I remember them from Mad TV. Oh, Because uh, okay. I grew up in the 90s. No, see, I watched a shit ton of Mad TV, but why can't I think of... They were more towards the latter part of... See, I did drop off at a certain point, and that must have been... I must have dropped off before they... They came in kind of the same time, I want to say, as, like, I think Bobby Lee and some of the other cast, later cast members. Yeah, that was definitely around the time that I was tuning out. Yeah, so that was my first venture into knowing who Jordan Peele and he okay. is. We might be more familiar with them, like I said, from the Key and Peele show. There was a movie that just came out more recently, I think last year, a movie called Keanu about a cat. 
Oh, right. I haven't watched that comedy. Yet. I heard really good I things. I haven't either. Though. I just, like I so said, there's one of those films and, and or shows I have, I really have on my radar. It. Just It's hard to get caught up on certain things. I will, though. They were also a part, or at least Jordan Peele, I mean, he and Key were a part of the show Fargo, and they played... Oh, yeah. I haven't watched that yet, I think, either. I can't remember if they played field cops or if they were FBI. I honestly, like, I even... I know that you, no, don't, I know that you don't have to do this, but... I mean, I rewatched the movie fully with the intention of rewatching the movie, intending to start watching the series, and completely just like watched the movie and was like, man, that was a good time. Cool, I'm going to play some video games, and never got around to watching the series yet. I can say this about Fargo, at least through the second season. If you love Billy Bob Thornton, mm-hmm. watch the first season. If you like Kirsten Dunst, the second season's super stellar. And the third season's, if you like Ewan McGregor, he plays a dual role in the third right. season, which ties back in, of course, to the, the original. But strong show. Great cool. show. Eventually, I'll be caught up on enough things to hit it. I'm getting there. I'm almost all the way caught up on Doctor Who. Been hitting all my CW verse shit, but we're getting off topic. Anyway, nah, Key and okay. Peele. He was also, also lends his voice to Bob Burgers as well. That's right. So, yeah. I mean, this is a Peel joint, as we as we brought up. Yeah, Jordan Peele I do want to suck them both off for a second. Yeah. I'm definitely not the first person to ever make this comparison. I'm not the billionth person to ever make this comparison. I'm like the two billionth person. But like, if you like Dave Chappelle, they're the continuance. They have a, I would say, a little bit more cleaner edge to them compared to Chappelle. But not completely. No, 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 no. They're still dark. They still... That's the, that's they the have fun thing, too. Like, they're cleaner than Chappelle overall, but the edge is there, and it gets fucking dark sometimes, and then it's still not afraid to say some fucked up stuff sometimes. Well, of course. It's you just know. overall a little bit more back, which... It's just sort of their style, too. It's I don't, I don't think it's really like, you know, it's just who they are. No, and as a tandem, as a duo, they're they're brilliant together. I mean, they're hilarious. You can't help but laugh at what they do. So, also, this movie's fucking fantastic. Yeah, anyway. I, I do want to kind of get through some of like some more of the, you know, cinematographers, some of the distributor stuff, so we can blow through that bullshit and get mm-hmm. right into our cast. So I'll move along. Our cinematographer's Toby Oliver. He's more accredited to films within the Blumhouse production. He did films... Man, was this a Blumhouse flick? It is. It sure is, because... Um, Good on them. Yeah, because I'll mention a name here in just a second to blow that wide open. Toby Oliver, he's credited with the film Insidious 4, Chapter 4, that is, uh, Beneath Hill 60, and Wolf Creek 2. I have seen Wolf oh. Creek, the first one. Pretty good film. Music is by Michael Abels. This is an African-American composer. He is more known for his orchestral work with things such as global warming, delights and dances, and urban legends. Nice. Now, the score is great, but while we're on the topic of music in this movie, something that stood out to me and something that I know you wanted to mention, too... Me and our biggest fan, your sister, are both huge Childish Gambino fans. And this movie opens with Redbone, right? Yeah, it sure does. There's a reason why Jordan Peele put that in there. And because we are talking spoilers, this is what we are about, right? Is there's a couple of verses in there where he talks about stay woke, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. It's kind of an uplifting song. It really does set up this movie a lot. It is. It's a precursor. I mean, I don't know. I... But that's a great song. We listened to that on the way to Portland to go maybe, see Radiohead. Maybe some of this movie, I guess, later on. We are we are spoiler heavy right now. And it's just the stay woke is making me think. There's portions of this movie where, depending on your background, might seem a lot more subtle than, than maybe intended. Because, like, the garden party scene or whatever the yeah. fuck you want to call it was kind of hitting the nail on the head with just like, by the way, look at this. Yeah. This is kind of racist. Also, this is kind of racist. Also, this is kind of racist. The thing I like about this film 
as we talked about this a little bit in Green Room, is the fact that no matter what part of the country you're from, there, there are certain things that you're familiar with. But then, in this film, there are certain connotations that you might not be familiar with, depending on which part of the country or part of the world you're from. With this depending kind of subject on your matter. background, I could see how that scene would just be like, so what? You know what I mean? Depending on your background, because I know that there's still places where, I, I don't know, I don't... No, trust me, there are, there are places here, there are places in the southeast where these are still prevalent. Maybe not to this extent, but there are certain things that get played up mm-hmm. in these lights, you know? Which I'm glad that he brings up in these films. Uh, anyway, we'll continue, we'll, we'll backtrack for a second, but... So, but no, I wanted a fucking Childish, Childish Gambino. Gambino yeah, because, man, what a great song to open up with, too. Because I don't think that we'll ever get another chance, maybe, to mention Childish Gambino on our podcast, considering our the nature of our podcast. Right. So while we're getting to mention that, if his album Camp would have came out when I was in junior high, I would have grown up wanting to be a rapper. Like that's his how much I fucking so that's how much smooth. I love Childish Gambino. If I can, we have had nowhere near the same experiences, but he can still talk about shit that I can relate to. You know, and I, if I'm not mistaken, Donald Glover is from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Hence the the show's name Atlanta. So there was some pretty cool stuff within that show, and just knowing who he is that I'm familiar with that he uses on that show. But I'm like so once again, I'm glad that Jordan Peele used that track in this movie. Moving on from music, we're gonna go with uh, producer. One of the producers, several producers, but one in particular is Jason Blum. Right. He is the founder and CEO of Blumhouse Productions. He's responsible for films such as Whiplash, the movie Split. Paranormal Activity, which is one of the, if not the highest grossing film compared to its initial budget, right? The film was shot for like, what, 15 like grand no or some money. shit? Like no money. The first Paranormal Activity, best of the franchise, I think goes without saying. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like being too big of a fucking high and mighty prick for saying that, because that movie, <laughs> go, those that franchise goes to some weird places fucking later on. How many are they up to? I might not have seen the latest, like two. I'm not sure. I, I haven't kept up with it since the first one, to be frank. I marathoned quite a few of them, because I was kind of seeing this chick, and she wanted to see them all a few years back, but I don't think I've seen the latest, too. Anyway, where I noticed it went some weird places and didn't all seem that great or coherent anymore. That first one, though, great idea, great movie, shot on an insanely low budget. I mean, when I heard the budget, I felt like they, how did they spend that much money for what I was being shown on screen? But it worked, because what they did was fucking genius with that first one. And it proved in the return that they got, because it's like in the excess of over $200 million, if I'm not mistaken, worldwide. It's not a bad return on a film that's on a super micro budget, which we're not unfamiliar with, considering no. some of the films that we've covered. So moving on from... Well, I don't want to move on from Jason Blum. I just want to mention a few others. He's also responsible for the film The Purge. This is where he's a producer of. The film Insidious. Um, you just... Yeah. Uh, I've been meaning to bring this up, and since you mentioned The Purge, we might have to end up covering it, because I'm super excited by this idea. They're doing a Purge TV show. I don't know if you've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, I am, I am familiar. I, I feel like we might end up having to make that into a running segment or something. Because that would be cool. The idea of a show based around all the other days of the year where something, a universe where that happens, just insanely intrigues me. And if they pull it off, it could be something pretty spectacular, I think. Think so. of all the different variances 
for days of the week, days of the month, days of the year that they can play on. Yeah, and just the the people working behind the scenes, the power plays, the people working to keep it going and not keep it going because of people's views on it and other people having to get ready, whether for defense or to potentially just use it as an excuse to kill somebody who's a fucking threatened or a nuisance in their life, like, and getting to really examine, like, the good and bad sides of people even more. There was some really cool social commentary within that whole structure. We're going to get to that franchise in we some way will. on this podcast. There's another show that I'll mention once we button this guy up, both these guys up, that is. There's a movie that's getting turned into a television series that I want to mention because one of our listeners did mention it. Oh, The Mist. Yeah, I didn't know if it was too early to mention that, but I'm excited to see what they do with the series with The Mist as well. Right, yeah. Oh, me too. Me too. For yeah, sure. wrapping up, Jason Blum is one of the producers. I didn't mention the other ones. Several more to mention. Uh, production companies is Bloomhouse Productions, Monkey Paw Productions, and QC Entertainment. Distributors for this is Universal Pictures, are responsible for the 2017 USA theatrical release. Special effects team is Ingenuity Studios, are responsible for the visual effects in this movie. The release date is February 24th, 2017, here in the United States. The budget for this estimated between four and a half to five million usa dollars the gross worldwide is 250 million and if you factor in out of that 175 and a half million came from the united states and canada okay yeah so not a bad return so, tagline before oh, we get into yeah, it i'm tagline. sorry because you know i'm all nope, about tagline that. that works just because you're invited doesn't mean you're welcome i like that that's really good yeah so think this. about that because that could have a series of meanings perhaps you mentioned the visual effects, and to be completely honest, this movie got way trippier than I thought it was going to from all the trailers and shit I'd seen about it. Holy fuck. There were some really cool shots that they used. It reminded me of one of the films we had talked about being one of our, if not our longest podcast, actually, being The Cell. Oh, there were the certain cell. shots that... I don't think they borrowed off each other, but it reminded me of certain scenes from The Cell. Yeah, no, I thought... It seemed to me from like the trailers and shit that the the dread and the horror in this movie was going to be a lot more akin to what we actually saw in Green Room, where there's half of the movie they're trapped in the green room. Yeah, and that's, and that's where, part of the dread. Yeah, it gives you that humanizing aspect where you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going. Well, yeah, you don't know what's happening. They're caught in there. You're in there with them. You're just seeing the reactions. You're, Nobody's you're, being a superhuman. You're almost getting to, to hear all their anxiety about the situation. And yeah, like you said, that that's part of the human of the situation, really. Yeah. This one I thought was going to be like that. Instead, this one's like the Stepford Wives. It really is. This one has more... For me, it felt more like a watching... Kind of like how a cult works. Mm-hmm. More so than like building this anxiety and dread and fear that the green room presented. But we'll move on to the actors that really brought yeah. this to life. So we were talking did incredible. This entire cast was it, and there were sections of it where it was a large cast, but we were not going to mention. But it had a strong central cast, several characters that were really, really solid. Our main protagonist in this film, and we mentioned off our podcast here, where we might butcher his last name, but we're going to give it a go, is Daniel Kaluuya or Kaluuya. Kaluuya. Columbia, right. I think. Right. He plays um, Chris Washington in the film. Fantastic job. Does a brilliant uh, job. Now, this guy, this gentleman is from England, right? I believe he's from the London area. So keep that in mind in this film, too. I do want to say that although it was convincing, his look of being scared when he was scared and, like, terrified or, like, 
in the deep place or whatever. Mm-hmm. What was it called? Was it the deep place? It had a certain name. I'll, I'll I have it written down. Anyway, uh, we'll get to it. Like although he sold it and it was like authentic, I want to say that it was just right on the verge of being comical too. Just almost on the verge of being a caricature of himself being in that situation, but not quite. And it was still awesome. But there was times where I was just like little bit yeah really close <laughs> and i think that might have to do a little bit with the cultural aspect like i said you're going from a predominant american cast where this gentleman might be if he might be the only english actor in this film if i'm not mistaken i could be wrong but as far as a lead role i was actually slightly familiar with him because he has appeared on an episode of doctor who I, I wrote that down he was in the 2009 series of doctor who he played the character barclay yeah in planet of the dead i yeah. i like that episode i i forget about it often but. some of our listeners might be familiar with him in roles in the film sicario he was in johnny english reborn Wait, with you, Rowan Atkinson. Did you ever watch Sicario? I have not seen it. Damn it. I, I was curious on, on your take on it. No, this next I one, haven't watched it myself, and I, I want to watch it. But anyway, sorry. It's okay. Tangents. It happens within what we do. The next film I was going to mention is one I have seen, because uh, this film was kick-ass, too. He was in that. He was in the show Black Mirrors, which is a Netflix show. He was in the second episode of the first season. Okay. Yeah, it's really I good. haven't watched it yet. That's another one I keep meaning to. He plays an interesting character in that film. It's um, He gives an impromptu performance in that episode. I'll, I'll put it that way. Really strong performance. He was also on the television series Babylon. Okay. So some of our listeners uh, I know that he's been cast movie. in Black Panther. Oh, That cool. teaser trailer just debuted over this weekend. And it looks... Holy shit, it looks fantastic. Oh my god, Black Panther looks insane. I mean, this is Get Out, so Black Panther, to go along with the theme, is incredibly Afrocentric in a huge way. I mean, a lot of it looks like it takes place in Wakanda, which fictional African nation that sort of hides its wealth. People think it's like an impoverished nation. At least, I think in the comics at this point, everyone knows Wakanda is actually fucking big leagues. But it seems like... Is it considered an offshore haven? No. No? No. But the thing with Wakanda is that it's the only place that you can get vibranium, which is like what Captain America's shield is made out of. Oh, that's pretty neat. And like the Iron Man armor and shit. So they're actually fucking wealthy as shit. And so it looks like in the movie, like I said, I think in the comics they're out. Like people know that they're big leagues. It looks like in the movie it's set up that people think they're, they're a third world country and sort of like hidden beneath they have like this like black utopia that's like the most technologically advanced place on earth because they're 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 basically like a post scarcity nation because they're so rich from vibranium and being able to just advance their culture in in secret from society just work on themselves and do all this shit that's interesting that's really cool but he's cast is he cast as black panther no 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 but he is in the movie that's cool so so look out for daniel and black panther as well our next actress is allison williams she plays rose armitage now her name is interesting rose and armitage armitage jordan pill used because of an hp lovecraft story i have to look it up precisely but there is a mention of it which i can get to here in just a moment so i want to say while you're looking that up real quick that he did a great job she gave the most convincing performance the entire movie, I thought, because, as we put out, this is, is the spoiler section, I didn't expect her turn. I honestly, for the first part of the movie, thought that she had no doing 
in her family's shit. That makes sense because the way she, that she plays her character probably within the first hour of the film never really hints at it. There's probably signs upon, you know, further viewings, but on initial I hadn't I did not see that. And right at the right at like the end of the second act when when he finds those pictures, like my fucking heart dropped out. I was like, "Oh no, she's in on it." Like you're fucking kidding me. Like it hit me like emotionally. I was like, "You've got to be fucking kidding me like i thought she was fucking cool and nope white devil nope really and then even then like she almost won me back by the way that she was selling her performance to like freaking out and looking for the keys and then she just fucking drops it and just you know i can't hand you the fucking keys do you want to know something interesting about allison williams killed yes i do (laughs) i don't mean to interrupt she is the daughter of news anchor brian williams oh wow yeah. Okay. So he's he he got in trouble a little bit for fabricating being in certain war places where he was not. So he got a little a little bit of a shiting for that. But yeah, Brian Williams is like I said, he's a news anchor and this is his daughter. But people might also be familiar with her for her role on HBO series Girls. She's in that. She was uh, she played Kate Middleton in the series Will and Kate, and she also played in Peter Pan the live, I guess, stage production. She doesn't have like a lot of film no. credits. She was in the guest bong episode of the League. That's I pretty cool. That. Yeah, I need to get caught up on that show. There's a lot I've missed out on. The next actress, main actress, is Catherine Keener. She plays Missy Armitage. People might be more familiar with her from the 40-year-old version. That's something I think a lot of uh, people are probably yeah. familiar with her. And she was also in the film being John Malkovich. I don't know if you're familiar with that film. Fuck, I haven't seen film. it. I've watched it. It's been a long time. There are a lot of similarities in like, terms I, of the I'm themes. pretty sure I watched it on VHS. It's a good film. It's you know really what good. I mean? Like yeah. That's how long it's been. Isn't Yeah, it's a, I want to say late 90s film, perhaps. Yeah. But it's interesting because there's borrowed themes of the fact that people are living inside other people's minds. Anywho, moving on, Catherine Keener, she's, like I said, she was in Capote, 40-Year-Old Virgin, Into the Wild with Emil Hirsch, who we mentioned earlier. One of my favorite films, because I did mention Pam Dauber and the fact that she was in Mork and Mindy with Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Catherine Keener was in a film with Robin Williams, a film called Death to Smoochie. Also, oh, with I never did watch that. Edward Norton, directed by Danny DeVito. Mm-hmm. So, highly recommend it. It's one of those you can also partake into extracurricular activities and enjoy yourself and get a good giggle or two out of it. And rounding out, she was also in a film with Nicolas Cage and Joaquin Phoenix. A little film called Eight Millimeters. Oh, damn. Yeah. It's been a long time since I watched that one, too. It's been a long while since I've watched it. I still remember bits and pieces of it, but I can't remember where Catherine Keener is in that film precisely. Oh, Nick Cage. Oh, Nicholas. Moving on from Catherine Keener, we have our father in this film. Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford. He plays Dean Armitage. Our listeners might be familiar with him in the role on the television series, The West Wing. He's been in the film Cabin in the Woods. Oh, that's right. Scent of a Woman with Al Pacino. He was also in the film with one of our actors in Red State, one of the kids. I can't remember the the exact kid, but in the film CBGB, we had mentioned one of the kids played Lou Reed. That's right. He was on the television show with Colin Hanks, which is Tom Hanks' son, The Good Guys, which was on Fox. And I'm more familiar because I I started thinking about him and I started looking at him. It's like, oh, there's a film back in the 90s I remember from. I couldn't place it. And then I, I was like, oh, he was in Billy Madison. He was the guy at the end of the film where Billy and that red-haired guy are debating on stage where Billy's trying to pass 
I guess, oh, to graduate. Wait, what? That was he was like you. That was the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. That was time. him. That was him. That's him. Holy fucking hell! Yeah. Oh. This blew your mind. Remember we talked about Breaking Bad connections. Yeah. Now that we have it, we mentioned Anna Gunn. Yeah, in yeah. Red State, we just mentioned somebody just recently. I'll have to look back in, from the green room that was yeah, a somebody. part of it. Yeah, anywho, long story short, Bradley Whitford is married to Jane Kaczmarek, who played the mom in Malcolm in the Middle. She was also the television wife of Brian Cranston, who is Walt Whitman. Oh, right. <laughs> and Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. So there's that connection, right? So, like I said, you might be familiar with him in those roles, but specifically for me, Billy Madison. The son in the film, Jeremy Heritage, that was the character's name. God, played by wait, Caleb real, Landry real Jones. Quick, oh, I'm sorry, God. God, he was awkwardly annoying the entire movie. He looks completely different from when I saw him in Billy Madison. I mean, that's yeah. a long time ago, too, but. But, God, he was fucking terrible. And it was almost, it was almost quaint at first. A lot of how. his characters have that. I don't know if it's him per se, but sometimes it lends to that notion. And it was almost, it was almost kind of quaint and funny how, like, at first, like, the daughter warns him, like, my dad's gonna be, oh, I, I would have voted for Obama, and this and that. Been, yeah. And when he does exactly that, you're like, oh, cool. Yeah, so, he was warned, whatever. It's, it's funny, it. you kinda, yeah, he's white, too, so it's kind of, yeah. He plays it up a little bit. Da, 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 that's gonna ha- happen, but... That's his character throughout the entire movie. It certainly is. And he's just... He doesn't deviate. The worst. He's... This movie was really cringe-inducing for me, dude. Because I've had some of... Like, that garden scene, I've had some of that shit happen. Where it's just like, here, by the way, he's Mexican, so talk about how bad Donald Trump's wall is. And I'm just like, dude, I'm like third generation, and I'm fucking against it. I think it's terrible, but there's a lot of other people that are in dire need before me. We, d- we don't need to talk about my status right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Weird situations, man. And, and I, I know what you say in certain contexts. I did mention Caleb Landry Jones plays Jeremy Armitage. No, I, I did mention the H.P. Lovecraft uh, reference, oh, and right. I, I wanted to, because we're, yeah. we're rounding out the Armitages. The last name Armitage is an homage to the 20th century horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. It's the last name of the protagonist in Lovecraft's story, The Dunwich Horror. Though the Armitage family is villainous in this movie, the use of the name reflects this movie's homage to elements in Lovecraft's stories. There are decadent New England families with ties to the occult or secret societies, transmigration of souls from one body to the another, and altered states of reality and so on. And this is borrowed from the movie database. That's oh, where I'm yeah, getting these man. from. That's, that's a lot of those Lovecraft stories. I up was thinking and down. that too, because I was like, man, that Armitage name sounds like it's a reference to something. Now, think about this. We do these films, we know there's always references. That, and we would mention, I think starting off, that we're going to bring up H.P. Lovecraft a lot. I didn't think we were going to with this film, but we did. Right. And that's almost a scary thing is that in those Lovecraft stories, it's half and half where those people are just as much the bad guys as they are the good guys. Guys, because as I mentioned on a different story or a different podcast, he was slightly more racist than your average white guy in that time period and was against the mixing of races. And so those old blood families that were pure blood of some sort were also more likely to be the good guys in his novel. However, in, or not his novels, but in his stories. But they were also just as likely, like, there was a Amen. lot of them, like, into weird cults and this and that. So, and usually that's 
it be talked about as like a corruption in the blood, which was also kind of a metaphor just for mixed blood too. And yeah, it's his way of intermingling certain certain themes. themes. Yeah, it's interesting. But um, yeah, this kid Caleb Landry Jones, he played in the film Antiviral. I, I started thinking about him. I was like, okay, I do remember seeing him in the trailer for that film Antiviral. He was also in the film Contraband. Speaking of the X Men, he was in X Men First Class. He played Banshee. Oh, that's where I'd seen him. Okay. Okay. I think he was on one episode of the recent Twin Peaks. I won't say reboot, but it's, you know, they're kicking off a new season. Now, that's a tie back to us here in Missoula because David Lynch directs Twin Peaks. And he is from here. Send you back to Missoula, Montana. Yeah, so there's a direct connection. Not kind of inadvertently because I'm not from Missoula. You're from Montana, but you're not from Missoula. But it's a tie back to us. He was also in the show Friday Night Lights. He was in the film The Last Exorcism. Breaking Bad, he played the role of Louie for, I think, two episodes. I can't remember which season. Can't remember precisely where at, but he was in Breaking Bad as well. So there's another connection. Mm-hmm. So that rounds out the Armitage family. Marcus Henderson, he played the role of Walter in the film. Our listeners might be familiar with him in the film Django Unchained, the film Whiplash, and a voice in the animated movie Pete's Dragon. Betty Gabriel, she played the role of Georgina in this film. Okay. Speaking of the the Purge. She's in The Purge Election Year, which is a film that's coming out pretty soon. She's in the show Good Girls Revolt and the film Experimenter, which has Winona Ryder and Colin Firth, I believe. The actor Lakeith Stanfield, he plays Andrew Logan King in this film. We spoke about Childish Gambino, Donald Glover, in the show Atlanta. He plays in the show Atlanta, and that's where I was familiar with him from. I was like, that guy looks familiar. Then I saw the Atlanta, and then I saw where he played. I was like, oh, shit, okay. He was also... In short term, 12, he played Snoop, D-O-double-G, in Straight Outta Compton. Oh, nice. Okay. He's also in the Purge election year, so oh. there's a connection with that. Lil Rel Howry. Lil Rel, of course, is a nickname. Lil. Okay. Little. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I saw what his real name is, and I was like, well, I understand why he goes by Lil Rel now, because his name is Milton. I don't know oh. if I should be saying that. Hey, Milton. I just called him out. I just hey, lost some street cred. Milton. All right, so Lil Rel Howery plays Rod Williams in the film. He was the guy trying to help out. He's the savior in the end. Yes, he basically. is. TSA. Which wasn't the original ending. No, it was not. We'll mention that here in a little bit, but you're absolutely correct about that. He was on the Carmichael show. He was on the film Get a Job. And Friends of the People is another show that some of our listeners might be familiar with him. Another guy we mentioned before, this rounds out our main cast. He was in the movie Red State, Kevin Smith's film that we mentioned. He played the bumbling sheriff in the film. Right. And now he's the uh, blind art curator. Yeah, and he plays the character Jim Hudson. So if you didn't hear our episode of Red State, Stephen Root lends a lot of voices in Mike Judge shows. He's done voices in King of the Hill. He's He's, fantastic. He's great in everything he touches. This is the second time he's played a blind character. Do you know the first time? We didn't mention it. Oh, brother. There you go. High five. Because John Goodman was in that. Bowit. Bowit. Bam. So we got John Goodman in that one. Well, he was in Red State. Now we got Stephen Root again. I, I'll always remember him as Jimmy James of the show News Radio because Joe Rogan is that. And I'm going to plug Joe Rogan. He's in Joe Rogan Experience. Listen to that. It's great. So that rounds out our main cast. There's a lot of other members ensemble-wise. They didn't have huge parts, so I didn't want to write them down because like, it would have been a laundry list of people. Um, actually, one I did want to at least mention. She played the police officer that Rod goes to in a certain scene, and they kind of oh, downplay the okay, situation. yeah. 
Now, this actress, her name is Erica Alexander. She plays that cop. I, I didn't write down her, the name of her role. The show that I'm familiar with her, because... She plays Detective Latoya. Yes. The role that I'm familiar with her from... Latoya, where's Janet? <laughs> she plays Maxine Max Felice Shaw. She was on the show Living Single. Now, there's a lot of our audience right now that really... If you're familiar with shows like Martin... Back in the 90s, Martin Martin Lawrence. Living Single was one of them that I used to watch. Rock was one I used to watch. I mean, you looking at Family Matters. I could give you a laundry list of Family Matters. African-American shows that I used to watch, right? I like I, said, I grew up in the Southeast. I used to listen to R&B and hip-hop, you name it. I'm, you know. Anyhow, but I was like, she looks super familiar. And then I looked back, I was like, hold on. She played Maxine in the Living Single, so she wasn't that. I just wanted to give her a shout-out, because she was really good in that show. I'll, I'll never forget her. She played an uppity character. Like, she felt like she mm-hmm. was superior to some of her castmates. Not personally, but just her character on yeah. the show. So anyhow, that rounds out the, the, cast. G- the gist of our characters. Yeah, our cast. So getting into this film, because like so we kind of got out of that realm. God. Yeah, this movie, like, it's pretty new. Super like we new, said. Super fresh. Our freshest movie we've done. Haven't. If you haven't seen if it. If you haven't been out in society, you might not have heard about it. Yeah. But you've heard about this movie. You should have by this point. I mean, it's it's been out for a little while now. So, the I mean, the narrative's out there. People kind of know the whole thing about this. So all that we can really add in is kind of our viewpoints on all this. And this fucking... This kind of hit kind of close to home for some of this shit. Like I already mentioned, like, I've had people be like, Oh, well, look. Like, I've been in these social situations at, like, a party and be like, Well, you're the only not-white one here in the room. What do you think about this? And I'm like... Yeah, shit. I like. I want to go fucking leave you guys and go hunt for some fucking crawdads. That's what I'm thinking right now. It is interesting because I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in that fascination with a different part of society or just a different culture that you're not familiar with, and so you associate somebody through proxy. I mean, like for I don't know, for lack of better analogy, like the sin of my father or the sin of the fathers. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's the things of that nature. I'm getting at, and that's the, the nice thing. This this movie is just a tiny, just a titch. Just just a titch more subtle than some of the things that that could be. There's some no, really cool. maybe not. There's no. the the party scene really runs the gamut, but really anytime he's interacting with the family, you end up finding out that it's because they're running a weird fucking cult anyway, but Please. there's a lot of just theming and imagery that they're using to convey more than just that. And that's the things I think that as a casual viewer, you might not pick up on, but as a critique of film or somebody who's more interested in symbology and meanings and themes and things of that nature, I did write down a few I'd like to mention if you if you want to go through them with me. Well, I, I did want to point out the one thing that stood out to me without doing any research when I was just watching it and just examining it both... I mean, really, like I said, I'm mixed race and some of this fucking hit close to home because I've had some of these experiences. So as I was trying to just figure out some of this shit, what he's talking about, one of the things that sort of hit me towards the end was that it's not just like a big part of this movie seems like it's about slavery. And I think he's addressed that in interviews where he's like, hey, I don't want to bring the room down, but big part of this movie is about slavery. But that's not the only theme when they're talking about Stephen Root's going to end up getting the, the dude's eyes if their plan would have worked out. It doesn't. But if their plan would have worked out, he would have got his eyes. Do you know how? And it was kind of hinted that (laughs) some of those other cats might have gotten other body parts. I'll mention something about that. And I'm like, that's cultural appropriation. You know what they were? Do you know what they were really doing in that film? Hmm. And then those, what they were, (coughs) what they were doing. (coughs) Sorry. And is they were taking parts of themselves, like Stephen Root's character. He was 
essentially donating the part of his brain that kept him white and transmigrating that part into Chris, mm-hmm. his character. And so he was living through Chris. There was always going to be a part of Chris in that sunken place, but he wanted his eyes literally in the, in the terms that he's going to transmigrate their brains. That's oh, why that operation okay. was going on. So it, it started to make sense the more I started looking at some of these themes. For instance, during that whole party but when they were i, I did want to point out yeah. that that's when he, they were explaining that there was a cut around to, to like some of the guests at the party yeah and the insinuation was was that some of these other people had received like obviously like some of the people had been turned into like two. slaves yeah but a lot more people i think have went missing than that oh that can no be accounted for and so some of them were literally used as parts for these other people and i was like that's cultural appropriation no, You're, like totally, he was trying totally. to see he had admired his his view as an artist and he couldn't he, he was realize. literally blind to it he didn't have that view because he wasn't from those streets he wasn't able to show the starkness the reality be able to capture the things the same way he was able to and he had learned that at an early age but he knew how to make money off of it so he literally wanted to just use his eyes to make money it's wild and the other guy bringing up how like black is a fashion and well yeah no doubt he had mentioned the fact that he didn't care what color the person was it was just the fact that he needed to view it from that person's eyes like you say that was actually a huge one of that whole scene with the party the, the enclave of those guests some of the, the tall tale signs was the woman in the kitchen where she was kind of feeling out Chris's muscles and shit and was oh asking, was God. he better? Is it true? And while the guy was in the background, so some of that leads to the fact that they were literally testing out the product. They were sizing them up like a fucking auction. It was fucked up. <laughs> so they were still going to use, like, for instance, they were wanting to use that old guy, transplant him into Chris's body. I mean, that, that would make total sense. That that goes throughout, and evidence of that are some of our characters. Georgina, Walter, the guy who gets abducted at the beginning of the film. There's some interesting notes that Alex, I wanted to bring up. Now, though, they don't seem to be full transplants, though. They seem to be earlier versions of the process, because... They have that lobotomy. I can't imagine Stephen Root's character wants to live out life like them. No, not not as not like them, but they want to take their body, keep that part of them, like I so said, that, that is initially them, Stephen Root, or whoever they're transplanting mm-hmm. themselves into for instance the guy walter who's the groundskeeper and georgina the maid they are literal embodiments of the armitage mother not uh Catherine keener and the other gentleman but that guy's characters oh parents. right because at the end she's like grandma grandpa yeah why would you say that if that were not literally them they use those people because they had certain characteristics that were beneficial to prolong their essence right so the sunken place was more or less an analogy or a metaphor for the fact that they were switch it wasn't like they were switching souls but like chris when he goes into that sunken place you see how he sinks down he still can see what's going on but he lost control of himself so that's why Stephen Root was like, I'll take control of motor functions. You'll still be there. There's still a piece of you that's there, but I'm taking over everything. So they're lost. They're still there. And that flash is the trigger that brings that part of them back a little bit. Right. And that's that's all about code switching. It's fucking wild. That's all about you, you can be accepted in certain places as long as you act a certain way because other ways of acting are considered to be other and ethnic and this and that. It's, and like so it's, it's all about it's code really switching. It's 
I mean, the, the minor version that I like to bring up as a, of code switching that I like to bring up as an example is even like at work when I have to make announcements on the intercom, <laughs> yeah. it's not like I'm fucking talking to you guys right now. It's attention, all available employees. And then you go throughout the spiel. Everyone knows, everyone knows it's announcement. Everyone hears it because they're expecting to hear a certain thing in a certain place and it sounds professional and this and that. And that's just the extremely minor version, but you have to do it racially all over the place too because he wasn't even quote unquote super black but he was from the city and his mannerisms would have been able to tell and the the other example that they give backstory to is another kid from the bronx who has had this happen to him and he's now accepted because he has that white person living through him but it's not only about that life white person Mm -hmm. getting this extra no, life. it's socially acceptable. It's like about him saying, being socially acceptable. The thing it was is like I said, those those characters that entrap that embodiment of that black person, they were just assimilating to the fact that they were living vicariously through these yeah. black people, and they had to assimilate themselves. Mm-hmm. Although portraying a black persona at the same time, it's such a neat way of just intermixing it's, this weird sci-fi. Literal, with, I hate to say it in this way, but it's a literal blackface they were yeah. putting on. Yeah, I mean, they fashionably were literally putting on blackface. Yeah, I mean, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting how like I said Peel puts this into place. Uh, there was a few, I mean there's a lot of themes that that are interesting. One I did want to mention really quickly is his color schemes. You see lots of black and white and gray matter, and you also see the color scheme of red and blue. No, in red and blue specifically here in the states because this is, has a lot of political themes. Are the fact that red typically in politics represents conservatism, mm-hmm. you know Republicans, Grand Old Party, all that good stuff. Blue typically could be liberal or democratic. Which I think I heard somewhere that it tends to be opposite in most of the rest of the world. And I don't know if that's true or not because I don't live in most of the rest of the world. I don't either. I wouldn't be surprising considering politics in general. But the the lean, or at least if you catch this, like I said, upon first view, congratulations to you. you got a keen eye. If not, pay attention because there are a lot of scenes where Chris, he wears blue shirts as does Rod. There are certain scenes, too, where it has a lot of blue hues. There is a scene with Jeremy and Dean, the Armitage father and son duo, in the operating section of the house, where it's they're wearing like these blue scrubs, and it has a very blue hue to it. Even Allison, in the beginning of the film, she wears blue. But then the red comes into play when you find the box that she keeps the pictures in. Oh, Jesus. red. Like I said, Her dude, my fucking heart dropped out. She was selling it so well. She and was. I, damn it. She, damn she it. was like the bait. She was the kid they send out to and capture other kids and for that analogy, right? She was the bait the whole time. But the the color red, like I said, represents conservatism. But I think the way he used it, he I'm, being Peel, has a commentary to do with liberalism, right? The fact that they have good intentions. It's like being socially liberal, meaning like when you're out in, in social gatherings, you'll intermix with all these different people and have liberal conversations. But behind closed doors, you have very conservative values. And that's what typically ends that ideology the one story that that you didn't get to see in this movie that had to be in the background that i'm so curious about was i would love to see the story of her father being okay with it because her being the girl going out yeah because she's basically going out and they want a white homogenized society they they don't respect the personhood of these black individuals that she's luring back and that's the reason they're being lured back 
And she's the one having to go out and form intimate relationships with them to bring them back. I mean, shit, they show up and they fucking bang it out. Yeah, I mean, as soon as they get there, just about, right? Right. Yeah, it's interesting. One thing I did note down as they arrive to her parents' home and the father is giving the whole tour to Chris and he's making mention of the broom he's got sealed off because of, you say it's something like black Black mold. mold. Yeah. I mean, I knew that was code for something. And then I also noted, you know, he was talking about being privileged to go to all these different countries like Bali or Mali and coming back with souvenirs, right? He's like, it's nice to be able to visit all these different cultures. Like you said, cultural appropriation, like bring back all the good shit and deplete the The country of their resources. So it kind of made me think of that in that respect. So that was kind of a a little note, but you're right. right And it's also straight out like a a slavery reference too. literally bring the people. But there were certain things I was catching upon first view, which there were no coincidence. I knew what they were talking about, but I did note, like I said, with the color blue, this kind of carries back over a little bit to green room because there's a scene where Rose and Chris are there in the car and they're, you know, driving up to her parents' home, but they hit a deer. The deer fucking jumps out of nowhere. It's kind of weird how that whole scene plays out. They barely have any damage, which is just like, okay, I'm probably being too nerdy about that. Like, that car would have fucking got obliterated. I forgot about that. I did kind of like that scene because it was a good way of kind of showing, like, first off, he kind of ends up having that weird bonding moment with that deer, which comes back later on. Yeah, that's a big theme in a way. I was just sort of getting hit blindsided out of nowhere by this shit. Well, not only that, his mom was involved with that hit and run yeah. accident, and they just had a hit and run with the deer. And not only that, but it kind of triggers that with him. But not only that, that deer you see it in the family home as well mm-hmm. maybe not that particular deer but it plays as a theme in the in the movie but i also liked it because with the timing of it in the movie and everything else it was if they wouldn't have had that weird emotional moment that tied back in later on it might have been a slightly cheap jump scare that's a good point but with that moment and the fact that it was a good time in the movie to sort of be like you're not in the city anymore it's like you're now out of your element like this is now happening this is very real. Like, this is a real moment, and the next series of events is very real. Because yeah, it could have been maybe a surreal out moment. Of world, That's a basically. Good point. The point I wanted to make, too, about that scene, I mean, on top of the fact that it has these cross plays of themes, is if you look at his boots, he has blue laces on. And I was like, okay, it doesn't probably mean exactly what we think it means, but I was reading a little bit about what the blue shoelaces sometimes represents, and that can be like an anti-racist oh, okay. thing among the skinhead movement, right? Oh, okay. You know, we're not down with almost like like you were mentioning with sharps and things like that, which I have no expertise on, so I don't want to delve too much. Well, that's the thing. Like like I said, white is usually like white power, but I think sharps also use white laces, possibly just laced a different way. I'm not positive. I can, I can see that. And sharp stands for skinhead against racial prejudice. So there are skinheads who, for anyone out here there who thinks skinhead is entirely synonymous with racist which i think i thought for a long time growing up i think a lot of people have that it's not entirely synonymous with no, skin, with racist media has a lot to do with that mm-hmm. unfortunately but you're right they're not synonymous no not uh, entirely there are skinheads who's i mean they identify as skinheads against racial prejudice like that's their identity is sharp. That's their subculture in in that entire giant movement. So yeah, that was kind of interesting that I did. I didn't note it upon first view. I read it in some comment sections that somebody pointed out. I was like, "Whoa, that was pretty neat." Because I did go back and see that part. I did want to ask you a quick question. 
Okay. When you think of the name Rose, what is the color that comes to mind? Red. Okay. So do you think it's any coincidence that uh, her name is Rose? Damn. Yeah. That's another thing that. I didn't think about upon first view. Another interesting thing, too, is since we're speaking about Rose, Alice, and Williams in this film, she likes to separate cereal in this film from the milk. Did you notice that? Where she'll eat the dry right. cereal? And you know what? I saw an article online that I didn't get a chance to look up before we did this that I meant to read that was addressing that and the symbolism used there. And I didn't read it back then because I hadn't watched the movie yet, and I didn't want to ruin that scene for me because they made it seem like it was really important. It's not It's not that important, important but it, there's symbolism it's involved there. Precisely. That's a good way of looking at it. I, do you want me to give it away? or? Yeah, no, go for it. Yeah. Okay. And, and I know that like I know that like some of these white pride groups and stuff use milk a lot in some of their, their symbolism. I don't know the exact symbolism for milk outside of the fact that it's white and it could represent purity. Mm -hmm. So she'll eat the typically colored cereal that she eats, Fruit Loops spelt with O-O-T, things like that. So it got brought up the fact that she does that because she's kind of separating herself, segregating herself with the milk and the cereal. And she's also wearing white typically when she's doing these right. things. So she's trying to keep herself... Her entire room is basically it. shades of white. So it's, 50 shades of white. She is supposed to represent that purity, and she's in complete contradiction to that for the things that she has to do. And right. even the... I mean, just her whole being, the way she is, is a complete contradiction to the purity. Yeah, I think... I don't know. I think some of those dumbass fucking white hate groups use it because of... I don't know, like higher instances of lactose tolerance amongst the pure white race or something like that. Like, it's literally something fucking stupid like that. Yeah. But there's been some shit about it going on lately because some of these dickwads making the news, like fucking Spencer and all those shitwads. So. Here's, here's something I want to get back to with the deer, too. Is There's a scene when, like I said, the couple, Chris and Rose, they, they get up to her home and they mention that, you know, they hit the deer and the father starts going on this thing about deer and. Yeah, so. That really kind of reminded me of, like, the Nazi rants and comparing Jews to rats. Good point. In their propaganda. Because there's also a scene as they're walking throughout where he talks about his, was it his father? Who ran against Jesse Owens? Yeah. Right? Which also, I mean, that happened in Berlin, that race, right? Mm -hmm. In front of the Nazis. I mean, in front of Hitler and everybody in Berlin in, like, I think 1936. Like real Nazis. Yeah, for real Nazis. So that's a good point, too, because he does mention the rats and how they need to be exterminated. But they're also, in a weird way, kind of like a necessary pest. It's a metaphor or maybe even an analogy for the fact that they're treating Chris like a deer and the fact that it's hunted and that it's immortalized as a trophy. Yeah, he's a trophy up on the wall after all the useful parts they have been taken and consumed. The deer, it's you can't really tell unless you're really, really paying attention, is when he's down in that game room yeah. and the television set in front of him and it plays that armitage, the whole what they're about. They use a deer as a symbol in the video. Oh. So the deer has lots of symbology in it. Like, so we mentioned Rose's cereal. Cotton was an ironic element uh, in this film. Yeah. For obvious reasons. Like, so the fact that they use a white car. Now, Jeremy, that kid uses a white car, and it's ironic in a sense. That white represent, like, a white knight in shining armor. Oh. Right? Because mm -hmm. he does have that headpiece, like, that armor that mm -hmm. would be, like, a knight's armor. That's that, right. Yep, yep. In his car, as he's abducting that guy That's in the beginning of the film. That. Yep. So they use that. Like I said, the Jesse Owens thing. Even Walter running in the fucking yard when Chris goes outside to get a cigarette. And you see that scene where he just... <laughs> 
You're like, what the fuck? So because, think about this, because he Walter... He was grandpa, he almost got over it. That's why he was fucking running. God damn it. How did I miss that? Bow That's it. a good one. That's a good one. Bow it. See, I started thinking about it in that context. So you get that. The silver spoon that she uses where she taps. And when I say she, I mean Catherine Keener's character, Missy Armitage. Dude, that shit got really trippy. And it was kind of actually really about scary bit. about after all the rest of the Super really just uncomfortable nuffs that had went on. So she uses that silver spoon. Now, the silver spoon does represent, of course, when you think of silver right, spoon. Privilege. and White privilege, perhaps. But mm-hmm. privilege in general. Wealth, which they represented. And it's like it's passed on a lineage. Yeah. This is being passed on amongst their family. So we get to see that. So that represents like the whiteness and wealth. The sunken place where she gets Chris and the rest of the characters who have been hypnotized. From what I've understood, it's supposed to represent kind of like the white control. Not you or I, but the powers to be. Their control over the... It's the man. Black, keeping yeah. the black and brown man down. It is. It, it's it, essentially, like you said, he's keeping African Americans, he's keeping every minority race throughout U.S. history down. You think of slavery, it goes back to the Tuskegee experiments, mass incarceration, which we've seen kind of start with in the maybe late 70s, early 80s, all the way up through now with private corporations. So this is... And also for him, it's like an out-of-body experience like minorities don't have a complete control over their future because of all these obstacles that certain people in society put over them you know right. unfortunately for the most part it has been caucasian i mean it's not totally but it has been for a majority of not just u.s history but european history african history oceania's history asia history <laughs> all over the world and there, there was two things one thing i got an answer for one thing I don't know. Maybe incidental, maybe not. This movie made me think of zombies, obviously, in oh, a way. no doubt. But not traditional zombies, but in a way, OG traditional zombies. He did. Um, when I say he, Peel did mention that. Peel stayed away from making the end so- songs in the soundtrack sound voodoo-inspired. However, with the way that they were turning them into zombies and stuff, rather than like traditional methods, it made me think of voodoo zombies, just because, you know... I'm fucking into horror movies. Well, yeah. Can't help it, right? The other thing, though... Oh, shit. What was I going to say? That's the one that I kind of got the the answer for. The other one, though, is that I wonder... I felt like there was something in this movie that I was wondering if if he intentionally meant to liken the race struggle with feminism Hmm. and gender equality struggle. There was something that made me think about that, but I'm drawing a fucking blank on what it was. That's okay. I really, I I didn't make a a good note on it. It's the fucking problem, so. The cool thing is we have techniques for this. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, leave that in. No, it's no problem. Because I mentioned that I was going to talk about two things. Yeah, there was something in this fucking movie that made me wonder if he was intentionally also slightly likening the two. You know, the gender equality struggle with the race equality struggle. And it wasn't a big thing, but I can't fucking remember what it was. It pisses me off. For me, I would say maybe, I mean, outside of discussing the film itself, there's three other themes that really, I think, play a a huge part. And some of it's kind of subtle, even though it's you can see it in the film are the use of what I would consider, maybe even other people would consider high society games. The fact that Chris uses a, a bocce ball or a croquet ball. Oh, I did notice right? that. I thought that was kind of funny. In the game like, room, you see a foosball table, like backgammon, and I think maybe even a pool table, things like that. You see kids playing badminton in the background, while Steven Root, his character... Right, didn't was, fucking 
and Jeremy have that fucking lacrosse. Another example. There were example of, like I said, the trophies, like trophy hunting, lions, and things like that. Yeah. Which a lion was a theme throughout, too. It, could, it has several meanings, of course, but it could also mean big game, like the actual, the pride. And the, the fact of the matter is, it's none of these things are things that black people couldn't be into, but it's not associated with any of them. It's associated with wealth and white culture. Exactly. There's even a scene with an older white guest at that party where he's asking Chris about golf, and they go carry on about Tiger Woods and how he loves Tiger, and he wants to know about his form. So that's another example of what those people were looking for in Chris. They wanted to see if they, you know, if he had the mechanics. or if It they was, it was, such, it was such a subtly good way of intertwining of sci-fi reasons with actual racially charged reasons that happen on a daily basis to people. I wonder, I know why they use bingo as maybe like a metaphor for the auctioning. But I was thinking, I was like, bingo is played by a lot of old white people. But I don't think it's exclusive just to old white people. I wonder if old yeah, black the bingo one too. was weird i thought too but yeah but i mean they do use it i don't i wouldn't call yeah, that a high society a game part. i don't i don't think that's a high society game not when they play it in a nursing home uh, and the, the only other big thing i can think of that i want to mention is that the original ending was a lot darker you were right about that i kind of <laughs> a felt lot it darker didn't oh man yeah i got that <laughs> i was thinking when the police car what it seems or appears to be a police car pulls up and he's doing what he's doing to rose i was like oh no i know how this is going to play out wow well, this is the worst thing in the world that could be happening to and him i think right that now. was initially that was the thing it was supposed to be cops yeah did you read anything about why he chose not to do that i didn't i started to read about it but i just didn't give myself enough time to get completely ready before well, this episode. I don't know if it was during the time of editing or filming or somewhere in between the whole production of this film where the whole Black Lives Matter movement, the mass shootings across the country. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, even in my state of South Carolina with the, the kid shooting up the church. Right. They even shot this film, I believe... I want to say it might have been in Alabama. It's either Alabama or Mississippi. It was one of the two states. But it was shot in the Deep South for a reason. It was uh, filmed in Alabama. So for clarity, it was Alabama. But they had a limited time to shoot this film. I think less than a month is what they filmed it in. So it was interesting that they actually shot a racial-themed movie. Not racial in the terms that it's overtly racist and, you know, like mm -hmm. bigoted. But, I mean, it's super racially themed. Uh, there was something that, going into this movie, there was a fear I had, almost. Because of the giant, you know, narrative around this movie and stuff. Because so I was like, am I going to come out of this movie really not liking white people for, like, a week or two? Like, the first time I watched Roots? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, no, that's a whole different feeling. Yeah. And no, that's the other nice thing about this movie is that it shows off like some general accidental racist stuff. But this movie is really more like, no, fuck this specific group of people yeah. because they are the worst. Yeah, I think that's supposed to represent, for the most part, this affluent section of white culture where it's for them it's okay to culturally appropriate different societies and different cultures, what they call souvenirs or practices and customs and things of that nature. But not only that, to showcase it, but it's typically that they 
represent a part of culture where they have this control over the rest of society where it, it, it almost makes people out to be like conspiracy theorists when you talk about it. But there are parts of society that function, maybe not to this extent, but there are parts of society that do function in a clandestine way that guides the rest of society, whether you know, like I said, whether we know it or not. I thought that was an interesting play on that. I did mention that there was uh, there's two other points I wanted to make. Yeah. Just a real quick mention of was the fact that his phone kept getting unplugged in the film, right? Oh, yeah. And I was thinking, I was like, maybe that's a metaphor more than just a, a happenstance because it happens more than once. I, mean, I know why she did it. It's not a, a question of why. Right. In the plot, it makes sense why. Yeah, totally. But I was like, well, maybe that's another Silencing metaphor. Voices. I was thinking that. I was like, maybe it's a way of cutting out, like, it's a metaphor of saying black voices aren't always heard, and they usually get disconnected from the rest of society. Like, mm -hmm. they're just complaining, they're just griping. It's like, no, this is, there's social injustices that are happening all across the board that are being ignored. You're just scapegoating, and just like most of media and the rest of society does, they'll pigeonhole one section of a group, and that's the thing that gets enlarged. It could be right. just a percent of the entire population gets exposed. Mm -hmm. Extremism usually what gets exposed. So I was thinking, well, maybe the phone represents, or the, the phone being unplugged is voices being shut off from the rest of society. The other one uh, was the interaction with cops. The whole scene I was talking about with character Rod interacting with, what did you say her name was? LaToya? LaToya. Detective LaToya. Where she invites those other cops in to hear his story, and then they laugh at him. There's a narrative that blacks in America only make up 13% of the entire population, but they make up 34% of the entire missing population in America. That's not an unusually high number for a small demographic. Mm -hmm. So these are typically attributed to racial and socioeconomic factors. So if you're more likely to be found or at least be looked for or sought after if you're a white female compared to a black male. And that's right. kind of what they're painting this scenario as. Like it's a fucking joke that this black guy's coming in here and say that white people are using him for sex games and, you know, that wide eye mm -hmm. shut kind of thing that they, they alluded to. The mentioning talking with cops, I guess, brought up one other thing that this movie made me think about relating back to personal experiences and such. Like when I got to college, a lot of us were from small towns. And the one thing I noticed when I when we would all share stories and we'd all fucking hang out and fucking get drunk and bullshit with each other is that kids that grew up in the cities had stories that sounded either crazy or dangerous. Whereas kids that grew up in the country had stories that sounded either crazy or outlandish. And, you know, there's a little bit of a difference between simply outlandish and <laughs> dangerous. So some of these country kids' stories of learning how to drive out in the sticks were, were almost always just great times like my own involved like going down a mountain in the middle of winter that sort of thing but none of the rest of them had a section where their parents had to include how to talk to the police with it yeah and i mean that's a story that's almost cliche in the wake of all the black lives matter stuff and and all the stories that have sort of been brought to the forefront in the media and shit but like that shit's kind of saved my ass a couple times it's gotten some of my white friends off the fucking hook a couple times because cop comes up i know how to talk to the fucking police but it's because i got taught how to talk to the police because i knew that shit like what happens to him at the beginning of the movie happens and i've had it happen <laughs> it's interesting that scene too because it's it appears at first that she's sticking up for chris she's like why are you questioning because that happens i know in it retrospect really she's does. just getting him out there yes so we don't really know that that's probably a part of the first more view fucked up i agree 
but it just as a surface appearance it seems like the cop is asking for his id for no fucking reason it's just another typical story of you know black people being oppressed and that's how it gets played out but it has completely different sinister meanings for her it's even yeah it's even more fun so I, I did like that there there was a lot of that going on that it's it could be easily missed but it happens happens in society all the time i've had it happen where i've had white privilege with my interactions in several occasions <laughs> where trying to catch me riding dirty <laughs> you know it happens it really does and there's there are times where i've had to be vocal in defense of people you know even though she ended up being a shit stain that was pretty cool in that scene she was super smart i mean you gotta give her credit her whole setup and just her whole character was really cool yeah, i was really she cool. pulled it off she does a great job but i was thinking you know because you and i are from two different parts of the country almost three thousand miles apart but there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of contrast in both of these films yeah i made mention or alluded to the fact that the director of green room he talked about seeing the documentary of american undercover part of the hbo documentary series on skinheads and this guy recruiting kids down in the deep south and brainwashing them into being white nationalists and things mm-hmm. of that nature and we talked about that and then with this film growing up in the southeast where slavery <laughs> hello yeah. you know it was it was predominant and you still get that i mean you even get the fact that the confederate flag is still being used on state flags in certain parts of the south and in my state it the finally got taken down from the state capitol you know yeah so these are things that are still going happening on. in, in mm-hmm. modern day society that it seemed like, what the fuck are we doing? But I will say this too. I will well, say hasn't this. it been like the past month, there's been like a bunch of shit going down all around like New Orleans or something. They've been uh, getting rid of a lot me. of old Confederate me. monuments and shit. Yeah, because there there are a lot of statues and monuments and sculptures of all these different confederate soldiers which i think that represent a certain part of that's society. a really tricky one because of history and stuff i do think that honestly i think one or two of the different statues at different battle memorial points might have some relevance in being left put but some of these things are fucking terrible oh i totally agree and it's not about preserving history because when you look into it, a lot of these monuments weren't put up till 60, 70 years later when there were white nationalist movements. A lot going, of sympathizers trying to get them in place, and that's usually what happens. You'll get a group of, like I said, sympathizers, apologists. They'll try to rewrite a narrative, which I can understand, and it's like a very tiny speck of light. You do want to keep certain, you know, historical things intact. Like I said, there's maybe one or two at actual battle points depending on what they say i'm not sure but there's but a, a lot, lot of, of those baggage, are man. fucking terrible there's just so much baggage that's included with that and i think like i said with both of these films there's there's a lot of similarities in terms of the fact that you have to deal with the social commentaries that are still being played out in society like here in the state there's this huge like this white pride movement mm-hmm. um that's that was getting national headlines because this guy's getting punched in the face and distributing literature oh right yeah yeah, like yeah. i mentioned him earlier dickwad and then you have also with the cops in black society in general and then you also have this racial tension that gets it does get not always but it does get it gets propagated by media and different outlets how do how do we deal with these conflicts and i thought it was interesting that green room didn't delve necessarily entirely with skinheads it's just wrong place wrong time but this film is you're put right into it so they make you tackle these themes differently and i do want to say kind of overall i want to add on to the point that i made sort of towards the beginning i still say that green 
Green Room is the better movie, but Get Out might be the more important movie right now. I think that is a really good way of looking at both of these films. Like I said, that doesn't take away from one or the other. I feel like Green Room was a stronger film. I really liked Get Out. It has a lot of themes within that film that are very, very relevant to what's happening today all over the country, right? Not just the Southeast, not just here in Montana, all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get different things out of both of those films and still come away knowing that these are great films for this time period right now. You know, we'll see what happens down the road with these films in terms of their, I don't know, their prevalence. You know, do they still carry weight for right. 10, 15, 20 years from now? Who knows? But I think they're very prevalent right now. Yeah. Fucking go watch them both. However, those were also kind of heavy flicks, and I think we're lightening it up next, aren't we? Well, we've got or actually what did we talk old about school flick. Oh, we're going old school, then we're lightening yeah, it up. Yeah, that's right. So, with that being said, we do have we to, did at plan least this out next a little two. bit. So, yeah, but I'm I'm happy that we covered this. Is a really cool way of hitting a double feature, right? With like I said, two films dealing with these social aspects, these social themes, and just having you and I just going back and forth. I also want to point out that this isn't the first time we have sort of touched upon sort of socially aware horror movies in different ways with like, well, we just did Red State and Savage Land. Savage Land is the one that I want to mention right now because, God, it seems like we mentioned it like every week for like a month straight and then we got away from it for a little bit, but here I am about to bring it up again. So that was definitely kind of a special episode for us and I want to thank all of our listeners right now because it is actually currently tied for being our most listened to episode. I'm super happy about that and proud as well for the both of us. The weekend it came out, it instantly became our third most listened to episode, but then it sort of fell into a race with with a couple others and it's currently tied for number one and that actually makes me really happy just because of sort of what that episode meant for us and the work that we put in and it just really makes us feel like it's it really paid off so thank you very much for for that yeah i think that was a a very good point i'm glad you brought that up because that is that is a moment that i'll i don't think i'll ever forget it just kind of goes to show what we're doing it is paying off it doesn't sometimes it might not feel like it but uh, i was very proud of that i'm still proud of it i'm happy with what we're doing we've got some really cool shit coming up we even got a really cool happening this week for oh Tyler right and I. yeah we should actually have should a little bit that? of bonus we'll just say we have a little bit of bonus content coming your way it's going to be another half episode and we'll we're just going to play sort of sort of play that one by ear with how we're feeling at the end of of the event and we'll talk to you about it then without giving too much away i'm getting hungry i'm hungry for it. i'm hungry too i'll say this really quick and then we'll we'll get out of here is that that film i think is a one-time screening here in missoula and then it's going to be part of the film festival that's as far as i'll say with cool yeah Yeah, i'm looking forward to that hungry for it what's the next one we're doing you said old school i know devil rides out that's right devil rides out and then we've got a killer movie coming up that we were talking about on the light side of things so keep that in mind a lighter yet killer film. I felt like there was one other thing I wanted to tell people, but maybe not. I did want to plug something, if that's okay. Yeah. Is that cool? Yeah. I did want to plug the fact that I'm really digging this podcast called Hellbent for Horror. I may have mentioned it to you a few times, but if people like ours and are interested in other horror-based podcasts, I'd say give him a go. He's not on SoundCloud. You have to go to his website. You can Google search it, Yahoo search it, mm-hmm. type in Hellbent, one word, for horror. And he's got some really cool stuff. There's some films that you and I have mentioned off our podcast that he's covering from a different angle. He doesn't cover the films like we cover them, just from different elements. So yeah, I'm, I've been really impressed by listening to that podcast. I've still just been digging on American Gods myself, which actually with like the racial themes of this show, like things about like immigration get really heavily touched on in that. Go watch it. 
really. This very latest episode is a good way of like how different stories and narratives kind of change over time to sort of suit different people a little bit better. Kind of like we mentioned, like the South trying a different narrative post Civil War and shit. And the way that that immigrants bring ideas that just eventually get assimilated in any way, whether you've realized it or not and how it's it's all just a big part of it anyway, so being a fucking dickwad isn't helpful. <laughs> yeah. I'm really looking forward to catching up with American Gods, because like, I've been kind of off in podcast land listening to Joe Rogan Experience, but listening to Bobby Lee, we mentioned Matt mm-hmm. TV earlier, but listen to his Tiger Belly podcast, really good, really funny. There's a, a lot of things that we've been doing, we're catching up on, but we've got some really cool projects I'm looking forward to. And Wonder Woman, go watch that. Yeah. So with that being I said, want to throw that in. No, I already I, sucked it off at the beginning, or <laughs> or whatever. Like nosed its clit, flicked its bean, whatever. Yeah, whatever. No, I'm I'm really excited that we got to do this double feature one on one. That's right, mano a mano. We're going old school. Yeah, I'm excited. Going to lighten it up, and then uh, we're open again. Right, and to continue listening to all that and to us and to what we have to say about all of this bullshit, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, Stitcher, tuned in, tuned in. We're still on there. Probably missing something. Check us out on Twitter. Did you mention that? Right. Oh, not yet. Fried but I mean, we are at, at Fried Squirms on Twitter, trying to trying to do that shit whenever we can. Yeah, we're still there. You can check us out Facebook, on our Facebook. Uh, just search for Fried Squirms. Pretty easy. Our and website. our website, www.friedsquirms.com, or you can email us, squirmcast at gmail.com. Yeah, so there's different outlets that you can reach us. We're still open to hearing back, which we have, which I'm super excited about. There was a couple of mentions from some of our listeners. Thank you. We love you. Yeah, so I was, I was happy about that. Yeah, so there's, like I said, there's several ways to check us out. Hopefully you do. In the meantime, all I got. yeah, in the meantime, I enjoyed this episode. Go do awesome things. Yeah. People. Now I'm looking forward to really some cool episodes and, Me too. and movies coming up. Me too. Yeah, that's it for Fried Squirms this week, though. So I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Peace. Peace. <laughs>